0: a very special episode from the appendix of screaming through the ages now i haven't dug in and done one of these in a while i think it's been since my end of the year best of 2021 since i've did kind of one of these special episodes and this is continuing on with the year in review episodes i did one for 1990 early on and by the way if i haven't said i am your host trey whetstone as always on here but these are going to be kind of um, fun episodes where I'm trying to get other people on and get their perspective on a year and their top 10 list. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk a little bit about the year. We're going to talk about the box office quickly. And then we're going to go down through our top 10 horror films of that respective year. And I'm letting the guest pick these. I know I've been teasing about doing some of these for a while, but this is the first one we've been able to get to fruition. And on this one, I am joined by Nathan Bartlebaugh of the Phantom Galaxy Podcast. Nathan, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, and I am super excited to talk uh, to talk about this year in film and just to be on Screaming of the Ages in general. So uh, thanks for having me on, Trey.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. I think we've uh, been going back and forth on each other's shows a little bit here <laughs> recently. It's kind of been the line is blurring. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But no, always happy to talk to you, Nathan. So tell us a little bit about what year you picked and why you picked it. So.
1: When we were talking back and forth about uh, potential years, and I think I mentioned some like, hey, I do 79 or 89 or 99, you know, and those I think pop out to me as big film years in general. You know, as, as, you, as I think most people know, I'm a film fan in general. I am also a horror fan and. Those years uh, were, were good years, I think, for horror. And they were also good years for uh, movies in general. But the uh, after thinking about it a little bit more, I really wanted to land somewhere in the 90s. And uh, again, 98, 99 kind of like for me, I think were were really big years for movies. They were also uh, where I was at the time where I was out of uh, high school and, and definitely in a point where I could kind of see whatever I wanted on my own and go to the movies about as much as I wanted, as much as my meager uh, you know, bank account would allow that uh, I was seeing a lot more stuff kind of on my own. But it was also in the 90s was a point in time when at one point my dad had a part-time job at a video store, and then I had a had the same part-time job, that uh, I was seeing tons and tons of stuff. So the 90s was sort of a sweet spot, and ultimately I settled on, I think I glanced at a couple of the movies without looking too deeply into it, and went with 1992. And so I, I chose that based on, the fact that again, some of the movies that were were in '92, uh, from a horror perspective, and that that really was the point in time where I was just old enough, I was just finishing up middle school, heading into high school, and it was a point when I was just, you know, you're you're, you're kind of dealing with puberty and all of that, and you now suddenly you are, uh, you're you're getting an opportunity to rent some of these movies and go to sleepovers and see some of these horror movies you haven't seen before. And as wild as the '80s, where I think the '90s are even crazier in some ways. So for some, for for a young boy at that like twelve or thirteen age, man, uh, the '90s were kind of wild, particularly when it came to horror films. So I'm very, very excited about this. It was definitely like a a trip down memory lane.
0: <laughs> that that's awesome, Nathan. And in contrast to that, you know, I was two years old in 1992. <laughs> but here's the thing: is I have this weird. And I found this out in October because I had went back and did 1990, my birth year, um, for the first one of these. And I watched 1990 and then I switched over and watched some movies from 1992 and from 1991, three, those early 90s. And this is why a lot of times in film, and I like to say decades aren't really what you should be going by because to me you know 90 91 92 feels a lot like 88 89 and 79 feels a lot like 80 you know they kind of blend together but you're you're right man this year was crazy there's some <laughs> there's some weird stuff going on in 1992 and i think a lot of people kind of you know like to dog on the 90s when it comes to horror movies And I get that to an extent and I've heard, you know, there's not a lot of depth in the nineties and there's not a lot of this or that, but you know, I was able to, I think I watched, ended up my final total was like 24, 25, 1992 films, just horror films or close to horror. And there's a good number of those that I think are solid films. So maybe it's not as deep as something today, but I think some of the years in the nineties are, could stand up to some of the years in the eighties. I don't know what you think about that, Nathan.
1: No, I think so for sure. And I think growing up as a kind of nineties kid, the thing that I think what you have in the eighties is a lot of pockets of subgenres that were that became very popular, and then you saw several several copycats of that. And in the nineties, you had a lot more of just some very weird one-offs. There's a lot of experimental stuff happening in uh, both at the level of independent film and Stuff being released to the theater, and I think what was kind of intriguing about the '90s that's different than it is now. Now everything's changed again. Right now, I think in some ways with streaming and everything, and having as many options that we have, in some ways it's we've now recreated the video store digitally, right? You know, yes, you uh, not just that you can go back and find all the old stuff. Like half of the stuff from '92 is available right on streaming on Amazon or Tubi or one of these things. But in the '90s, I think you know what the, the later '90s direct to video became a thing right and then suddenly mm-hmm. a lot of they, it was it was a thing early full moon was always doing it and then later you got other uh you know direct to video and now you know direct to streaming not stuff that's big and prestigious but like you know look at half of over half of Nicolas Cage's current output is direct to video right mm-hmm. and back then in the 90s that would have been the case for Cage but you had movies coming to theaters that I don't think anyone would now consider a film that would come to theaters like 92. Uh, no, it's, it actually comes at 93, but Leprechaun comes to theaters, right? You know, Dr. Giggles comes to theaters. I mean, there are tons of movies, movies like infested, the, the layer was called ticks, you know, the warlock films, these movies were coming to movie theaters. You could actually go to the theater and see a movie called American Cyborg, you know what I mean? That kind of stuff wasn't largely happening just a few years later, you know, then it was direct-to-video. So it was kind of cool that you could still see really low-budget movies and experimental films that came out of who knows where uh, next to the bigger-budget films. And you were also having a lot of independent filmmakers just starting to touch the limits and the boundaries of what they could do i mean tarantino is is coming up around this point in time right in 92 and then in 93 you're getting you know this when you're getting your reservoir dogs and your true romance true romance and things like that and so while not horror you're getting a lot of that and at the same time a lot of the big budget stuff was realizing uh what you could do with money on screen and we were getting big grand gaudy things that we had, you know, that were sort of a weird mix of things we'd seen in the 70s and even earlier at like big budget movie making, but just crazy, crazy movie making at the same time. You know, this was the era, the late 80s and the 90s is when kind of Tim Burton came into his own. And, you know, I'm sure we'll be talking about him a little bit here. And you were getting stuff that was horror adjacent, but it was just very, very strange. And at the same time, I think you were starting to get the beginnings of films that would develop subgenres later on that didn't necessarily have a dedicated subgenre at the moment but were were groundbreaking enough that in a couple of years they would start some of these trends. So I think 92 is very exciting in that way and then again there's the nostalgia factor.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, I <laughs> I don't know how I have a nostalgia for this time but I somehow do when I'm watching these movies. There were also um I noticed a couple of things there's a, I think I saw like two or three films, at least with some pretty uh, distressing cat violence, which I don't know how that becomes a trend here. But <laughs> um, just a weird thing I noted, um, I think one movie which you might not have seen, I had it in, but I know Sleepwalkers had it and that's
1: a little distressing. The animal violence in general, I mean, they, yeah, there were two or three films here and it's not it wasn't necessarily always cats, but you had uh, I mean, I, we'll probably talk a little bit about a a Hong Kong film called The Cat. <laughs> It has what what I can only describe as a wusha fight, uh, but realistically shot between a cat and a dog. That's very violent and ends badly <laughs> for for at least one of the two involved. But yeah, yeah, that was a, that was an unfortunate thing. Kind of this point in the '90s where you had the, the on-screen violence to animals, and, and particularly the horror films. I mean, I don't think you were seeing it necessarily a lot in more of the mainstream movies. But yeah, there are scenes here. I mean. Uh, We'll uh, sure talk about Sleepwalker. Sleepwalkers is a film that, you know, it seems like it's a horror film made for cat fans on one hand, right? Because cats are sort of, as Stephen King pointed out at the time, they're kind of the heroes of the story. But there's a really graphic scene at the beginning of the film that's distressing if you're a
0: cat lover. Yeah, and I can't necessarily say that I'm a cat lover, but as a general animal lover, it's distressing too. Yeah,
1: know? yeah. Pet, Pet Cemetery Two had some some stuff in there too, where you're just sort of like, do we need this? Oh yeah, I don't think that we do. Yeah, yeah. There, there was that is an unfortunate element I've I've noted, particularly of horror films in the '90s. Is there there's doesn't seem to be a particular sensitivity towards that. And I, I, I now to be fair, I think when it does appear, it's meant to be horrific. It's meant. It's not meant for enjoyment or titillation, but I just think that there wasn't sort of this taboo of, oh, you know, we can't show this. We're going to show this and it's going to have sort of an instant horrifying effect. And I think that we're, you know, a lot of this is coming off of uh, back in the 80s when you had the boiled rabbit right in the pot mm-hmm. in a movie like Fatal Attraction. Yeah. Um, things like that.
0: Yeah. And we're also seeing I mean, you've you've talked about Fatal Attraction. You might as well take the. <laughs> The cat out of the yeah, bag. Yeah, I so opened the say. door there for you. went back to the cat jokes, right? Okay. Yeah, no, go go ahead, Nathan. And there was something that you noticed when we were kind of looking at this year. So I guess a an added benefit, and I was wondering why am I so why
1: am I so uh, fond of 1992? Why does it bring back such fond memories? And I think that's because you know, in the 90s, particularly mid-90s, and you're again like the 12 or 13 year old boy. You go even just go to the video store was like you know some of the box covers was almost the equivalent of of, of flipping through like a Victoria's Secret <laughs> magazine or, you know, not quite a playboy. But I mean, this was the era of the erotic thriller, right? Like mm-hmm. when that came screaming back, but I don't know, screaming back, it, I don't know that it had ever been the kind of thing that it was, you know? And in fact, I think erotic thrillers are to the, to the early to mid nineties, what slasher films were for the eighties, you know, except it was like, Hey, you know, we have this, this fan base of young teenagers who want to see movies where people have sex and get killed. But Jay, what about middle-aged housewives? (laughs) And, (laughs) and, you know, what, what about the, uh, the hedge fund accountant that wants to see a movie that represents him, you know, a movie where guy gets tired of sleeping with his wife and hooks up with a crazy chick that wants to kill him. You know, I think Michael (laughs) Douglas sort of spearheaded that movement, so to speak. And, uh, with movies like Fatal Attraction, and then of course here in '92, A Basic Instinct, where he's back with Sharon Stone. Yeah. Not back with Sharon. Somebody's back and with Sharon Stone. Yeah. Uh, who, who this is sort of the movie that kind of cements her her place. And but man, I didn't realize there were just so many of them, and they all follow the same formula. They're almost as prolific as slashers were. I counted. So using Letterbox, which I think you know you mentioned is kind of what we're we're using mm-hmm. to put these lists together. That I went through with on just on Letterbox and pulled up the thrillers. This was just really just to, to see for my own um, edification uh, that there are something like forty five <laughs> erotic thrillers. I would say maybe six of those star Shannon Tweed. I mean, and I, I may be exaggerating, but I would for sure four to five of them too. And uh, and some of the ones that I think people would consider like the big ones, like uh, <laughs> the big ones. But you know, the movies like. Basic Instinct, Hand That Rocks the Cradle, Single White Female. Now, I would argue that all of those are probably more mainstream thrillers with the kind of erotic thriller element. Bitter Moon was a Roman Polanski movie that got really weird. But Poison Ivy with uh, Drew Barrymore, you know. Uh, and then then you just got where they were just throwing words together, final analysis. <laughs> You
0: well, know, you start to get the birth of like the lifetime original thriller, right? It, it's very true in
1: here, and again, you had the body chemistries one through however many of those there were, and I, we we don't really need to talk about the lot because I don't think any of them. You know, some of them edged on horror, and some of them were just downright awful. But mm-hmm. they were they were definitely a. Uh, I recognize that they were definitely a uh, a part of my my growth, shall I
0: say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if you, oh, go ahead. No, you good? No, I was just gonna say I've been watching a few um sixty like late sixties giallos lately, and we talk about proto slashers a lot of the times. I'm thinking those late sixty giallos are kind of the proto erotic thrillers. <laughs> There's not as much of the slash and you know all that kind of stuff as we get in the later giallos. They're kind of more mysteries with like sex elements in them. So. <laughs>
1: Well, and it's funny you say that because even in in um, 92, Lamberto Bava does one called Body Puzzle. That's basically right on what you're talking yep. about. Like, yep, it's it, it's exactly that kind of movie.
0: Yep, Yeah. I don't know how much more we need to get into that, but it's definitely was a thing at that time. And it was a big thing. Yeah. And I was just going to say probably kicked off earlier with some of the diploma stuff, but then definitely, um Fatal Attraction would probably kick off what we would see as a result of in 92.
1: Yes, and some of the Palma stuff like Body Heat and stuff like that was sort of like the update of the old noir stories. And so a lot of these try to have that element. But you're right. I think what they're really become precursors for like the Lifetime style movies, which um, which are, are are just tamer versions of these movies, which could be, you know, they went from being kind of a like a mild R to some pretty raunchy stuff, yeah. you know. <laughs> it just depended but as a as a, you know a 14 year old of a 12 to 14 year old sort of like you know the cover art was just about enough uh, <laughs> most of it was how many how many different uh you know uh, negligees can shannon T- tweed where but if you want to hear more about that and you may not <laughs> you can i think podcast real talk has an episode where they dedicate it to erotic thrillers. So I think specifically kind of this, I don't know if it's specifically the direct video, but I think that comes up. So I may want to put that in the show notes, but you can find them talk about that. I don't think we're going to do that here.
0: Yeah. And I haven't heard that episode, but those are the guys to do it. If someone's going to do it. it's <laughs> Correct. <laughs> uh, correct. I think I was joking with them after their, um, that episode they did on fear. That's the name of the film, right? The Mark Wahlberg film. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. Yeah. Ninety six. I was joking with them like note to self, you know, start an erotic thriller episode without even knowing that they had done one earlier. So that's, that's pretty good. But yeah, the, the only other thing I wanted to say on 92 before we can kind of dig into this stuff is I think we start to see the sequels that would set up for what we would get through the nineties were a lot of direct to video. Not that the ones that were in this year were a lot of that, but, I think we would get a lot of direct videos of these bigger franchises as we got through the 90s.
1: Yes. And what's interesting is here, even, even as, a, as a kid in the 90s, at this particular this is 92, 91, what was weird was seeing uh, sequels to movies that were maybe five or six years old, right? Mm-hmm. Properties from the 80s that you're like, wait, who decided that we needed this, you know, this sequel? And it was kind of cool if you were a kid who enjoyed those earlier movies, like, oh, here, here comes the sequel to, you know, insert title here. There were a lot of them. I mean, we're getting a Ghoulies 3 in 1992, right? Like, uh, John, directed by John Carl Butcher. And you had Critters 3 and Critters 4 almost simultaneously, like, back to back almost. I think Critters 3 might have been 91, but Critters 4 was 92. You also had but like, weird stuff like Waxwork 2, that, like, you know lost in time which i kind of enjoys a fun movie trancers was hitting up a bunch of sequels of so trancers two and three scanners starts this whole mm-hmm. uh direct to video sequels with scanners two that goes on and has several scanner cop films which i know vinegar syndrome is sort of you know now they're selling 35 you can get a 35 dollar 4k of scanner cop if you so
0: choose <laughs> you've got stuff like Witchboard and stuff coming out that would i have never seen any of them but they'd get 10 or 11 of those in the 90s
1: yeah and then the witchcraft series which is right back to like the romance novel covers yeah
0: and i'm blanking on one um it's a film about a sorcerer and i'm blanking on it and i can't think warlock yes warlock (laughs) thank you you knew exactly where i was going but there's there were definitely multiple sequels of those i think too
1: yeah, Warlock, uh, the arm again. Actually, it's another one. talk talked about theaters that that came to theaters in 1993, uh, not in 92. But Julian Sands did show up in a really bad vampire movie. I think it was called Tale of a Vampire, where he, probably one of the most boring vampire movies I've ever seen. He's a vampire librarian who just like quotes Poe endlessly and does almost nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> I, that would be an avoid.
0: <laughs> That's awesome, but that. Nathan, that's really about all I have when we're trying to talking about a broad sense of 92. Um, Other than like you said earlier, you know, it's a very weird time. People are trying some weird stuff. There's some good independent stuff kind of popping up. Anything else you wanted to say on 92?
1: Uh, Not too much. I mean, we may talk about some of these sequels. I think Basket Case 3 was around this time. Stepfather 3. I probably should have made a list. So we, we managed to mention Children of the Corn 2. I remember that being one that, you know, came out again to theaters as, as did Pet Cemetery 2. The other, only other thing I wanted to mention is that we did have the other thing. And I mentioned this a little bit. Um, Land of the Creeps recently did an episode about Charles Band at Full Moon. Now, Full Moon was really kind of coming into its own, I think, Uh, particularly here in 91 92 where they were making sequels to trancers they had demonic toys they were making more puppet master films uh and they they were really uh, seed people dr mordred this is the movie that uh, was supposed to be dr strange and he couldn't get the right so they just named it dr mordred but in every other respect it's a dr strange film with jeffrey combs playing the title the title character these movies are fun they're not great but this was banned putting together kind of like, you know, I, I jokingly said before the MCU, you had the FMCU, right? The full moon cinematic <laughs> universe. But for comic book fans, of uh, kids at that time, and nobody else was making these sorts of movies. So you could go to the video store and kind of get as close as you could at the time to sort of a comic book universe. That stuff was cool, even if the movies turned out to be kind of disappointing. <laughs>
0: Right. No, that's it's definitely something to mention. I completely didn't even think about that. But yeah, LOTC just did something on that. So good point there, Nathan.
1: But otherwise, I think that's mostly. Yeah, that's it. OK, cool.
0: Um, Well, next, we're going to move in like I I did on my 1990 episode. We're going to move in and I'll go through the box office. Um, Now, would you rather us start from the bottom and go up to the top? Yeah, I'm fine either way. OK, yeah. And I think. I don't remember the exact numbers, but ranking wise, I think 92 horror did a little better than it did in 1990. Again, maybe the dollar totals were a little bit higher, but I just included everything in the top 100 that was either horror or kind of on the line of horror. So I'll go down through and you can feel free to comment on anything as we go through. But at number 94 overall, we had Hellraiser 3 and that made (laughs) 12,534,000. $961 I don't know I'm not going to go into the specifics on each one of these but about 12.5 million
1: so only not too many people got to see a a Cenobite that shot CDs from its hands. no
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's edgy Nathan it's of the time no (laughs) it was of the time it was very of the time (laughs) Uh, we jump up to number 80 for the next one which was Buffy the Vampire Slayer which made about 16.6 million 77 was what you'd mentioned Pet Cemetery 2 at 17 million that's a lot more money than I thought it would have made. Honestly, I'm a little surprised it made more money than Buffy. (laughs) Yeah, that's not bad. Not bad at all. Here's an interesting one is at number 73, we actually had Cape Fear, which came out on November 15th of 91. But that made 18.8 million in 1992.
1: That's interesting, too. And I think that, that speaks to something that is just kind of mostly unheard of now which uh wasn't in the 90s particularly with longer frames between when movies would release to vhs and uh not just release to vhs but you'd also have the aspect of when it got to vhs you know movies aren't being released immediately where you can buy them you know Mm -hmm. one or two movies would happen that way like when a batman returns came out yeah it'd be sold at like your walmart or your typical big box store but all most movies were sold for a price that most people couldn't even afford because a video store would buy it and then rent that copy out several times and you know easily make the money back. So what I'm trying to say is these movies could play a lot longer because even when they did hit VHS, it still wasn't like they'd be necessarily extremely readily available. So uh, now a movie's got a small window right before it hits VOD or yeah. anything else and when dvd came along everything was hey the date it re- it's out on dvd i can buy it and i can own it uh so it did allow these things uh, there's a for people who enjoy these sorts of like online or, or like the apps like wordle and stuff like that there's a game called box office and you can look it up where they they'll just throw you out a year and the box office for that weekend and you get to guess the movie and it shows how many weeks the movie's played and some of these movies are, 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 have been on the box office for like thirty weeks, and the reason for that is, you know, in a world where they th- there weren't as many releases, and a movie could play for months and months, you did see that. So it's interesting to see a movie like Cape Fear that's from that was kind of a well, you know, uh, well thought of in ninety one, still playing down into ninety two.
0: Yeah. And I think you mentioned the VOD windows and like the streaming windows we have now. But I think even another thing is I feel like back in the 90s, you didn't see a lot of, you know, right now, a movie. Sometimes it comes out and it has a week in the theaters, especially now with everyone trying to push out these movies that were kind of delayed from the pandemic. But yeah, like you said, they just had a longer string in the theater
1: Something also dawns on me with yeah. Cape Fear specifically. If it's 91 into 92, you are probably seeing something that was much more prominent then than now, uh, which is a movie getting that second Oscar wind. I don't know if I don't know if Cape Fear was up for anything, but, it you know, if it had any sort of Oscar nominations behind it, I know it was a Scorsese film and uh, De Niro might have gotten some nods for it. Then it would have also had that probably second win through the January and the early months. That would explain why it might still be playing well into '92.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Right now, it's just more of a thing where, you know, the week before the Oscars, you get all the Oscar movies in the theaters, and some of them weren't even yeah. in theaters before. So it's a very small niche thing now. But I could see that definitely back then. You know, when the when the Oscars were giving out, or when they were giving out Oscars. To yeah. A lot of times to more popular movies than they do now.
1: And that film particularly was nominated. De Niro was nominated for Best Actor and Juliet Lewis for Best Supporting Actor. So that probably right there might have explained plain, explained some of it. Yep. And and it was nominated at Golden Globes for Best Picture.
0: Okay. So yeah, it definitely would have probably picked up off of that. But that's a decent haul for coming out the year before, a month and a half into the year. Sure before. it is, yeah. Uh, jumping up at 63, we had, uh, John Lithgow's Raising Cain <laughs> with 21 million. <laughs> Interesting movie. But, uh, then we jump up and we get our first, what I would think is a, um, classic of the time. And that would be Candyman at 54 overall. And you might think, especially being as big of a deal as it was in the nineties, that this might've been higher on the list, but it brought in 25.7 million.
1: Yeah. And I don't, I think the thing is, is when Candyman released and I saw it, the following uh spring, because it came out in like October of ninety two, it it didn't have much of a fanfare coming out, you know. And I think that it was really more. It was marketed as a horror film, maybe in the vein of like a, you know, people might have been thinking Friday the Thirteenth and stuff like that. And certainly now Candyman has that sort of cred, right? Mm-hmm. But I think in ninety two when it was released, it was definitely more of almost, uh, you know, sounds strange to say, but it was maybe more of a novelty of an art house sort of thing. Uh, it was directed by and I'm sure we'll talk more about it but like uh the director had only done like an arty, an art horror film called paperhouse I think prior to this mm-hmm. Bernard Rose yep. so it definitely I remember renting it and not sure what kind of movie I was getting you know and 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 it, and being baffled by the movie I did get in a good way but I think that was definitely a film that took a that made enough money that it could, it could scare up a sequel but I think it was a few years before people really realized the power that that film had.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point, but I think, I mean, 25 million is nothing to sneeze at back in the 90s. No,
1: it's not. And I think particularly, particularly for a movie, like an, an October timeframe, you know, that, uh, but uh, but I think it also speaks to the fact that there, while we do have horror, there was certainly a lack of it, particularly when you get around a Halloween, you're not talking like tons of movies. I think it was maybe this movie, Dr. Giggles were your horror (laughs) for, for October in 1992. Right
0: yeah that makes sense and um but either way, now the next two films were kind of buoyed up by that uh Stephen King mania that was going on at the time and that is uh number forty eight was sleepwalkers with thirty point five million and number forty six was lawnmower man that was a king story right yes and no
1: there <laughs> 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 There's a 30 second sequence involving a lawnmower in that film that was pulled from the Stephen King short story, The Lawnmower Man. But it's actually to the point that Stephen King has taken his name off. And it was shortly after the film was made. It has no relation to any kind of Stephen King story except for a scene where a lawnmower uh, of its own accord murders somebody by leaping through a a window. Uh, There's Um,
0: another theme right there of the nine, (laughs) the lawnmower kill. Yeah,
1: there it is. But the in in that film, if you watch the trailers now for the Lawler Man, even like on uh, YouTube or something, uh, you will. It says from the mind, and it's the part where it says <laughs> "say" of Stephen King. There's nothing else. It just says from the mind. Oh, that's awesome. And then you have it launches into the thing. So his name was taken completely off of it. Uh, it it's weird to think that those movies though kind of made some money though. <laughs> you know, really, I'm not talking about whether I enjoy either one of them, but just uh, I think that you know. I'm a little surprised that they did make as much money as they did, because when I remember them coming out, I I remember a little bit of some fanfare for the lawnmower, man. And I wanted it was around the time of my birthday, too. And I wanted my uh, parents to take me to these movies. And they were like, I don't
0: think so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I don't think I mentioned, but that one made 32 million. So even a couple million more than Sleepwalkers or. Yeah, that's interesting that that one that one was as high on the list. But up a little bit higher, we have our first erotic thriller, I think. I don't think we really mentioned one for that is a 35 at single white female, and that made 48 million. So that's quite a jump between lawnmower man and single white female.
1: And again, you had that built in sort of audience for it, yeah. like a very specific sort of audience that was going to these movies. Yep.
0: At number 27, we had Alien 3 with 55 and a half million. Um, we jump up at 24, which ah, I think this movie is much more comedy with some horror elements in it, but it is death becomes her, which made 58 million.
1: That's interesting. And I think this is where you start to hear that some of these movies are bombs. And it's, I think it's comparable to how much money is spent on them, you yep. know, versus this, because some of these other movies are probably very happy to make $30 million. You yes. Know?
0: Yep. And number 12, we're jumping up, not quite into the top 10, but number 12 is Dracula. And that made $82.5 So a really good box office haul for that one.
1: Yeah, and I think that's one that also would have had similar benefit, uh, maybe even more so, like Cape Fear, where it comes out late in the year, and then it it did get a lot of uh, Oscar nods heading into the
0: 93
1: Oscars. Yes.
0: And then at number... Let's see, at number nine, we had The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, which is another one of those... I, I don't, would you call that an erotic thriller? I don't I don't, I don't so. know. It's, yeah.
1: it, 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 but it definitely has that. It's it it it's got a lot of the same elements that you'd expect. It's got the, you know, here's the, we're going to introduce the babysitter into it. But it's, I think that's really the forebear of the, of the, you talk about the lifetime movies. I think Hand That Rocks a Cradle is definitely the forebear of that sort of yeah.
0: thing. Yeah, I agree with you there. And that one, that one hold in um, 88 million. So a pretty decent jump there. And then speaking of, I mean, at number six, this was the highest horror thriller film of the year was Basic Instinct with one hundred and seventeen point seven million. So that's a good day. I mean, that's right up there with the big films of the year.
1: Yep. Everybody trying to catch
0: that pantyless uh chair turn, I guess. <laughs> Man, that's a I, I'm sure we'll talk about that one more. Yeah. So, any other thoughts on um, the box office for that year? Like I said, I think it's a pretty decent year for horror thriller films for the time.
1: I think what's interesting too, you know, we talk about some of these movies that are on the list, and then there's several that aren't on the list that I think, uh, as we mention them, it's like, oh, yep, these were just bombs. <laughs> these, it's, it's financially speaking, there are movies that I think are much, much better than some of the movies you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I am, I am legitimately surprised to see some of these like pet cemetery Two and things like that, uh, be as high as they were because I just don't remember them making much of a splash when they came out, you know? Yeah.
0: And I think, you know what? The bombs are a lot of the time more fun and more interesting than the, <laughs> than the, the big box office yeah, hitters. Yeah. I, I think so. But I sure. think we're going to see when we get into our, I can't speak for your top 10 list, but when we get into that, I think we're going to see here, um, the weirdness coming out more than what the box office shows. So. Are you ready to uh, get into it? Get into our top ten list. Yeah, I sure am. However you want to. Okay, do it. yeah, we'll do. We'll give our top ten horror movies, horror thrillers of the year, and then after that, we'll just alternate back and forth. And then after that, we can um, talk about any honorable mentions or any other films we want to mention. So, do you want to go ahead and start us off with your number ten?
1: Sure, I can do that. And then my number ten film. This is nineteen ninety two is a very odd movie that I didn't I didn't see in 92. I probably saw a year or two later on VHS. And interestingly, I think I may have actually seen uh, sort of what was bandied uh, as the director's cut, which I don't think was something as common that you would see uh, back then, particularly for a movie that nobody had seen in the first place to so suddenly go right to the director's cut. But it's a movie called Dust Devil. 92 is directed by Richard Stanley. It's a little kind of South African thriller that uh, definitely a horror film, but a horror film that sort of combines a lot of sort of uh, mystical and magical realist elements, and it's a very strange little movie. I think the main actor here that would that most people might recognize, if they recognize him at all, was Robert John Burke. He's in a lot of different movies in the '90s. He's in a lot of Hal Hartley movies, and he was also in uh, maybe less prestigious. He was in Thinner. <laughs> a few years later in 96. And he also played, he also took over the role of RoboCop and RoboCop 3, also maybe not so prestigious. I think that was the next year. But Dust Devil is a very strange film. It's hard to exactly explain uh, the movie itself and it's ex- it's hard to explain sort of the atmosphere that it develops. But it deals a lot with sort of uh, African mythology and, and South African uh, mythology with this sort of uh, kind of spirit walker demon character that's sort of wandering through South Africa during the time of apartheid. And so it's against that backdrop where there's a, the atmosphere. Uh, and Stanley did a movie a few years earlier called Hardware that dealt mm-hmm. with the post-apocalypse. And the way Stanley shoots uh, South Africa in this film and captures that turbulence uh, with this weird red smoky sort of haze to everything, it feels very apocalyptic. It, it, it has a neo-Western vibe to it even though it is, again, taking place in the in uh, some of in the deserts uh, of South Africa and the sort of like communities on the on the um, outskirts of it. It creates a very lonely, strange vibe. And the way that Richard Stanley's character looks just his look, he reminds me for all the world of what the illustrations of the gunslinger and the dark mm, tower look yes. like, you know, yeah. and there are images. Richard Stanley was famously known. There's a lot of movies he tried to get off the ground. And one of them disastrously was the island of Dr. Moreau. But something else he wanted to do was the gunslinger. And I feel like a lot of the imagery in Dust Devil, while the story doesn't match up, a lot of the imagery that he presents in this film has a very mythic quality that combines uh, what we know of American and Italian Westerns with a a much more darker, horror-tinged, mythic sort of vibe uh, on that other end, folkloric, I would say. And those images do remind me of, of some of the images that were were done for King's uh, Dark Tower novel. So I liked that element of it. But then the story tells us very strange, very sort of... The ambiance is very specifically South African. You have this character wandering through the middle of all this political turmoil, and he ends up sort of... He's a demon, but he ends up sort of aligning himself with this woman who's in the midst of, of a suicide attempt. And it makes it... It makes this story a very lonely, melancholy kind of story. Uh, You do have gore. You have very strange sort of supernatural goings-ons. But it's hard to pin this movie down. Even the characters in the film don't seem to know all the time whether they are awake or dreaming. And in fact, the whole film might be some sort of a dream. And it has some of the qualities that I, I find in... If you jump over to Australian filmmaking, you look at Peter Ware, who did movies like uh, The Picnic and Hanging Rock and The Last Wave. And in his film, he is sort of uh, that aboriginal uh, dream time magic that's on the outskirts. There's some of that here. I remember there's a point when there's a shaman in this film as, as the detective is coming to see him. He says something like, you know, so-and-so came to see me at the theater on the day we were playing the bird with the crystal plumage and the seven golden vampires (laughs) it was a good double feature little bits like that where the noir and the horror and the western mix i love that kind of stuff i don't know if dust devil is a home run but it's such a weird little artifact that i find myself going back to it time and again And i think any good horror fan will want to see the movie for its images
0: yeah, so Dust Devil was actually my number 11. So it was seriously like my first honorable mention. And I like the movie a decent amount. I like hardware a great deal better. I think when I did my 90 episode, that was like my number maybe two movie or something. So I really liked hardware, even though it was a little gross. Um, but Dust Devil is so cool. And it's such an original type movie. And yeah, it, you were mentioning, if you haven't seen the um, documentary Lost Soul, it's crazy <laughs> making of Dr. Moreau. That's a good yeah. one. That's a good one to check out. But also you uh, you failed to mention here, I think, a recognizable character, uh, Zakes or Zakis Mokai, Mokai. I cannot pronounce that. But anyone who would see his face would recognize him from Serpent in the Rainbow. Um, Yes,
1: yes. Serpent in the
0: Rainbow. Tons of tons of films. Yep. Yeah. Um, But no, that's a great choice. I I like Dust, Dust Devil a lot. And I think it's one that maybe is a little bit lost as well as hardware. I don't think Stanley's stuff until he did color out of space. I don't think he kind of hit those highs with the, the general horror community. Well,
1: he really only had hardware and dust double and then there was the, uh, Moreau debacle and that was kind of (laughs) it.
0: Yeah. I think he did something. I remember maybe back on HMP, they had talked about a film called the theater Bazaar. I have not seen it.
1: Yeah. It was a short and that was more recently uh, in compared comparison to this. Uh, and it was like a short film that he did. He's done a couple of kind of very strange, very low budget things, but I don't think any of them
0: really, you know, really jump out. Right. Yep. So, no, that's a great pick, Nathan. Um, My number 10. I'm sorry. Did you have anything else on Dust Double? Are you good? No, just I think that, you know, if you haven't seen it, I think do check
1: it out. Be prepared for something that's strange. If it were coming out today, somebody like A24 would be distributing it.
0: Yes, Absolutely. So my number 10 is Alien 3, and specifically the assembly cut. I think this is one where when I first watched it, I liked elements of it, but it didn't necessarily pull me in like Alien or Aliens. But upon rewatching, and especially that director's assembly cut that, uh, Fincher had put together for this. And I think the alien franchise is pretty famous for their director's cuts. But I think it changes the whole movie and adds a little more character depth. And this is just kind of a cool uh, movie. I think we had talked back and forth, Nathan, where this kind of feels like the it's in the world of like pitch black, which would come later or the Riddick stuff feels like it could be that type of thing. You're getting this isolated planet and what happens there is it's the standard fare of they're trying to get through the aliens, but you do get some interesting characters on this kind of backwater planet, and yeah, I really like that. And I really like the way that the assembly cut pulls it all together.
1: Yeah, very cool. And I was so excited when this movie came out. Actually, my uh, this is perfect. My number nine is Alien Three, oh, cool. and I would agree. I think the assembly cut is the one that that makes a difference. Like I said, uh, we talk about that relationship and synergy between comic books and movies uh dark horse comics at the time which i would start to kind of follow because they had they'd put out uh, a couple of, of of issues related to another movie we're probably going to talk about later where i was like wow what is this and then they uh had done i think they ultimately did some comics for dr giggles and they did alien 3 i remember advertisements for alien 3 being everywhere and i was such a big alien fan uh, alien and aliens particularly aliens i think so I didn't see this movie in theaters. I wanted to. And, uh, you know, when I remember renting it in the main thing, my parents sort of being appalled at how much language was actually in this film. And it's, it is almost to the point of parody, I think, uh, in some scenes where these prisoners cursing, you know, where it's just like, uh, I, I think that Charles S. Dutton wants to see if he can't win an Oscar for the best way to string together a sentence that has nothing but F words in it and see if he can do adjective now and the whole deal. But I think he's very good in the movie. A lot of people are very good in the movie. And I think that the problem is that the the original cut of the movie is that it feels so chopped together. And it's such a weird deal to make a movie this expensive that's essentially intended to be a graveyard for the franchise. Like, mm-hmm. 90s was a weird time where I don't know if people saw the death knell of science fiction or something and they decided, you know what? We're going to spend a lot of money to kill this franchise dead. Like, this movie begins with a with a clear like, it murders this series better than the alien ever could. You know, yeah. it's it, it's so weird to have such a a definitive like chop to the throat to that end of aliens where everyone is sort of you know. And in my mind, that's where that series ends in a sense. I do like these other films, but you know that that send off is fine. It's okay to have a happy ending sometimes, and then it's so jarring to have this opening sequence that shows that hey everyone you loved except for ripley is killed is dead and we have an autopsy of newt of all people and it's just very jarring and i don't think it sits particularly well and after so many different scripts and so many different ideas that they settle on this one and it was originally supposed to be directed by vincent ward who's a very weird filmmaker but i, I happen to like he did a movie uh, at this point in time i think he would have done The only movie I think he had done was a navigator or a vigil and a movie called navigator medieval odyssey. And he's very much into, he's an Australian filmmaker, very much into sort of medieval art and architecture and, uh, mythology. And he also made, uh, what dreams may come later on with Robin Williams and a movie called map of the human heart. So uh his idea was have a planet made of wood that that idea was very very strange and obviously he didn't quite make it to screen but a lot of that that was going to be a monastery with monks and the idea is that he wanted a film where monks and ripley would be fighting a dragon together and a lot of that element still sticks except here dragon is real the the, the the dragon is death right like somebody yep. pointed out that rip ripley goes through all the stages of grief you know denial and bargaining and And I think what the assembly cut does is allows us to see that much, much clearer, that the character work that she's doing in this film is still very strong. She got nominated for an Academy Award, not for this film, but the one before it. And she does an equally strong job here, even though I don't think the movie necessarily earns her performance. Mm -hmm. There are lots of problems with it. I don't think the alien is particularly scary but and and we were getting this point in the 90s where science fiction movies just looked like every movie took place in a junkyard. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, or or a, and then a, there's a there's a flame factory. You know what do, what is the steel factory? Why do we need it here? You know, so much of it yeah. copies Terminator 2, I think. But I think at the end of the day it's still a compelling movie. It's frustrating and compelling in equal measure. I don't love it, but I like so much about it that it's hard not to include it here as a sci-fi fan as an alien fan, I think it's a better movie than it's given credit, particularly in the assembly cut. I think the direct, the, uh, the theatrical cuts a bit of a mess, but there's enough here that I recommend it. even if I wish they had not gone the direction they had. And we had had an, a, a movie that maybe brought at least Michael B in back, but you know, it is what it is.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, uh, I think the whole movie can be summed up by the tagline here on Letterboxd of the bitches back.
1: So, um, yeah, they, that they, I don't think anyone was ready for what
0: a downer that movie was based on that tagline. Yeah, no, I just remember seeing this for the first time. I think I caught some of it like midway on uh, cable. And then I finally went back and watched it later on. And yeah, it's kind of grown on me a little bit, I think. As opposed to growing in you, you know, that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I think that's a good... Uh good segue out of the alien three, but anything else you want to say on that one before we move on, Nathan?
1: No, I, yeah, I think that's probably, that was definitely one of the, the more, uh, I think, I don't know, prestigious, but more like, uh, mainstream anticipated titles. I think it was a bit of a disappointment at the time, but it's definitely one of the better films, I think of the, of that year in yep. terms of horror.
0: So I'm going to get some flack for my number nine, I think you probably can tell where I'm going with this. It's a movie that I don't think a lot of people (laughs) like, but it's uh, Amityville 1992. It's about time. I think a lot of the movies on this list are going to be driven by how cheesy they are and how much I kind of love the the just ridiculous cheese. And they're not great movies. And that's the same with Amityville 1992. I think what gets me with this movie, and it's kind of, I think I'd said this to you, it kind of feels like an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Um, Just with a little bit more adult content thrown in. This is just a weird, weird movie, and (laughs) it kind of it goes in places I don't think you expect it to. And I mean, you can pretty much you know what you're getting going in with a film called with a tagline of it's about time or a subtitle of it's about time. Because that's a, it's a play on words and it's, (laughs) um, yeah, I don't know what else more I want to say about this. It's just the cheese about it. I just love and are any of the characters really that likable? No. Is some of the stuff believable? No, but it's fun and I had a good time with it.
1: From the director of Hellraiser two, <laughs> a,
0: yeah, he and, and eventually,
1: yeah, eventually ticks. <laughs> so, oh gosh, ticks. Well, both movies I liked a little bit better than this one. Although let's 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 deal with a couple things up front. This actually is a much better movie than you would expect. Um, I don't know how much that's saying, but to me, uh, Amityville series has actually never been a, mo- a series that uh, I know a lot of people really love it or love at least like the, you know, the Amityville, the original film, the Amityville horror, but I never could really get into the series much. And I don't think I have uh, anything that really approaches fondness for any of the movies. I, even the first film, I think is just okay. You know, it has very much like a TV movie quality to it. I know it's not, but, um, and I don't know if you feel that way, Trey, but this one at least tries to have some kind of weird cheesy fun with it. And, um, you know, I think when we, wa- I re I watched, I'd seen this years ago, but I remembered almost nothing about it. And you're right. There's some, there's some real goofiness. Uh, we'll, we'll see a kind of through line here. There's some very weird, like incestuous undertones to this film. Mm-hmm. And that was a thing that popped up a lot in the nineties. And I, particularly in horror films, and I'm not entirely sure why now to be fair to Amityville, uh, the incestuous undertones existed even earlier in amityville to the possession in fact they were more overtones in that film uh but here it all comes together in a very weird way you say are you afraid of the dark and this is not a film for children but no you're right that the level of complexity that the supernatural story has and it all you know it's an antique clock that's sort of possessed and or it has those the the evil kind of spirits running through it and that's why it's about time i mean that's just stupid but <laughs> the, the the whole movie's dumb but it's sort of a cheesy cheer, cheerful stupidity there were things i liked about it to me the characters were just so irritating That I ultimately couldn't quite get into it in any other level, except to sort of just wait for them to all to die. And, you know, thankfully, this did have a little bit of gore, a little bit of a, you know, that you can see a little if if Randall directed Hellraiser 2, you can see a little bit of that creeping its way in. But I think as an Amityville movie. You know, I've seen a lot worse. And Stephen mocked. I was trying to figure out where I'd seen him from. He's the dad here. And I'd seen, I see re, I I remember him mostly from the graveyard shift where he had like a bad looking beard and an even worse, like New England accent. And he just kept saying things like, it's the graveyard shift uh, <laughs> to, to the point that they actually include his his voice in a little rap song that plays at the end of graveyard shift where someone's beatboxing and you just have him repeating the lines. It's the graveyard shift. Oh, but uh, what, talking about the um, 90s. <laughs> Yeah, the '90s, very '90s. And Stephen and Mock popped up a lot in the '90s in a lot of different films. In fact, I think he was the father in the Monster Squad, which was
0: yes. the '80s. Yeah, typically. he was. Yep.
1: but um, yeah, it's it's actually you know I went back and rewatched it with you, and I have to say for for this sort of direct to video kind of horror movie, and particularly the Haunted House genre movie, it's not bad. Um, it ain't good either, but it's not bad.
0: <laughs> no, and I it, when comparing it to Alien Three, Alien Three is by far the better film from a filmmaking standpoint. Uh, from pretty much all standpoints. But uh, for some reason, this one, sometimes I just go with the fun, cheesy film over a film that I think is good and like, but it's not as of a fun ride. And I'll tell you with the Amityville horror with the original first time I watched it, I thought it was like a classic and I really liked it on subsequent viewings. I've kind of went down a little bit. I don't know if I'm quite as low as you are, but I don't know if I put that in a classic territory anymore. I think it's, down a little further so I can see. Yeah, I don't that think it's from. a bad
1: movie. I just don't see it in the same. I don't see it in the like running with movies like Poltergeist or the Changeling or the haunting or anything like that. You or, know?
0: or even something that was a TV movie like Salem's lot, which I think is a good deal better. But yeah, um, yeah I'd agree. But the thing with the Amityville last thing I'll say on this is that Amityville series is it's kind of weird because when I was looking up some stuff on this, I think there's only like, and I say only, but I think like only 11 of them are like official, Amityville films, and there was a whole line of them, I guess, where they did like a possessed object thing. So that's where this clock comes from. There's like a dollhouse one, and all these other things. I see that was a
1: shtick that happened there, but yeah, now the Amityville thing. And it's funny because we had on our show on, on Phantom Galaxy, we had a, um, Friend of ours, Ryan Stockside, came on, and he's he he knows one of the guys that makes a lot of these sorts of things. Where they just now, it's the thing is throw Amityville as a joke in front of a word. So, like, I think he had a cameo in one called Amityville Karen and Amityville <laughs> Bigfoot, and I think there's an Amityville Shark, which uh, you know uh, we've had Amity Shark with Jaws, right? So I yeah. think that, um, yeah, but at a certain point, this was still a, a I say legitimate, but it was still a series of films yes. as late as. I wanna say like twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen where there was still like uh there was one floating around that I think had Jennifer Jason Lee in it, maybe Yes, that, yeah, I was just gonna say that. Yep. Yeah. I never saw it, but I no. know that it was a, a thing.
0: Yeah, that was in the last five or six years for sure, but I think a lot of them now aren't in that mainline series. They're just a bunch of films that are using Amityville in the title because they can and yeah, it's <laughs> they'll a joke. Try anything. Yeah. <laughs> So that's all I've got on that one. What's your, let's get it. Let's get out of this before I get burned <laughs> at the <laughs> stake. Nathan, Go <laughs> any further down um, yeah, before time runs out for me. What's your number
1: eight? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my number eight is a film that I went back and forth on this because I think technically speaking, the movie is not uh, like it, it, you know, the way letterbox works and you mentioned, you kind of went with, with letterboxes raises. I think they des- when the movie is made and when it's got a, basic release but the tricky thing about the 90s is there were movies and we'll talk about some i think we we'll get the honorable mentions that were made in like 1989 or 1990 and were shelved for years and not released anywhere so anytime uh, the point that someone uh, in the united states could even see these films i think this one definitely had uh what would be considered a spring 1992 release and that's when i saw it that's when it was I think brought to most people's attention including you know re, uh theaters for review and that's called clear cut is it made 1991 it's directed by rizzard bugajiski B- B- bugajiski uh i'm probably butchering that i don't know if you uh you have a no, better ask bill. better way you to ask bill. Yeah, i gotta ask <laughs> bill yeah yeah C- C- canadian <laughs> canadian film uh i do think it classifies as a horror film i don't know that i thought that when i saw it originally there were a lot of things about this film that when i revisited it i didn't remember uh now everyone who's this past year severin released what i think was one of the really the most cool sort of box sets in a long time maybe since that godzilla box at the criterion released it the all the haunts br's box set and in that box set there's a, a lot of folklore, and it's not even the stuff that you would normally think of one of the films on that on that set is this film and uh, it's a very interesting movie. I'm going to read actually what Letterboxd says about it. Uh, when a lawyer loses an appeal to stop a logging company from a clear-cutting Native American land, Arthur, an Indian militant, drags drags the uh, developer and a kidnapped logging mill manager into the forest. And where the movie goes from there is kind of insane. It really is. It Graham Greene, uh, a Native American actor who you most might have most recently seen, in uh antlers in a very small role it was kind mm-hmm. of disappointing to see him in that movie for so little time but he is the character who gets to kind of present the Wendigo legend and then he sort of pops out of the movie i think he's a very good actor unfortunately these days you end up seeing him in movies like atlantic rim because he just doesn't get <laughs> you know very big roles yeah. but at the time a clear cut came out uh in 92 he, he was coming off of dances with wolves we had a very prominent role and a really underrated thriller that came out in 92 with val kilmer called thunderheart which sort of uh, looked at the the Native American experience and sort of what was happening to them, particularly in regards to the reservations, looking at that through the lens of the Midwest. And this is looking at it from sort of the Canadian perspective and the logging and the deforestation. And it's definitely sort of an eco thriller on one hand. The horror stuff doesn't become clear at first because you're watching essentially a thriller, right? You've got this character of Arthur who's very interesting. I, Green is very rarely allowed to sort of carry a whole film, and I think he does here. He plays a guy who's a bit unhinged, and yet when I didn't pick up on the first time I saw the film, and it wasn't until the second viewing, uh, that it becomes very, very clear that the director is infusing a lot of, of interesting sort of folklore elements that suggest that maybe Arthur's not even a human being. Mm-hmm. And there are some very hypnotic and even hallucinogenic sequences that kind of back this up, the idea that he may be the sort of trickster spirit that is sort of avenging the forest, for lack of a better term. And I don't want to get into this too much, but he basically decides on some ironic punishments for some of these guys where he's, he's going to make this developer feel what the trees feel. And there's something involving debarking that horrified oh. me, stuck in my brain way more than maybe any scene I'd seen in a horror movie in those mid-90s. Uh, and it's very stark, it's very dark, and there's a lot of anger in this movie that's built under the surface and in Green's performance. And that's what makes it, I think, the horror film is that you really have a stark sense of what's happening. And a uh, lots of times, movies that deal with an eco-thriller concept can be very preachy. And I'm not, in this movie... I think has something it wants to say and has a specific agenda, but it does it in such a sort of brutal and direct way. And what happens to these two guys that go out with him in the forest, what happens to him, Arthur himself, it's, it doesn't pull punches. It's very uncompromising. And that's what I like about the movie. Is it a home run? I don't think it is. It has a lot of flaws, but they're interesting flaws.
0: Yeah. And I'll say um, I did crack open that, that, box set for the first time, and this was the first one I watched the other day. Now, I've seen some of the films, but um, this was the first one that I actually put a disc in because I haven't had it for that long. This one, like you said, I'm pretty OCD about this. Now, I I can absolutely get it. Now, like I said, again, I was very young at the time. I don't remember this. Now, post 2000, I usually go like you do, Nathan, when I remember it getting a theatrical release or a release in the United States is what I go off of. But this would probably make my 91 list and would probably be pretty high on my 91 list. Honestly, it's a cool movie. And uh, like you s- with the spirit thing, I read about that. And honestly, the first time he's introduced, it does kind of feel otherworldly or almost like I mean, a lot of this movie feels like a fever dream as it is. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's a really cool movie. Um, Pretty brutal at times, like you said, but uh, maybe a little slow. But I think it's I think it's pretty good.
1: Yeah, it does linger a lot, and I think that there's a middle section there. This movie could have probably even – it's not a very long film to begin with. It could have maybe even been a little bit shorter and been even a little bit better. Mm -hmm. But it is a very good movie. It is uh, – it's it's definitely dark, and I think that the horror is of a very specific type. And I actually think – I would have never considered it for full core, but I think that's kind of the right tag at the end of the day.
0: Yeah. I mean, there are certainly some films that get pigeonholed into folk horror when really they don't yeah. belong in there. But I think this definitely does. And I think most of the ones in that box set that oh, I've yeah. seen anyway, for sure, belong in folk horror.
1: What's refreshing is they're sort of different facets of the term folk horror. So, yeah, you're not like a clear cut's not a movie you would think of. But that just means you're not getting one more movie about a witch in a woods, you know? Exactly. <laughs> kind
0: of yeah. Yeah. No, you can you can have your eyes of fire and you can have your clear cut and you can have your Allison's birthday. I mean, you can have all of it. <laughs> and yeah very cool movie if you haven't seen it which i assume a lot of people haven't then definitely check that one out i think that's streaming somewhere now right i think it's on shutter i think because
1: a lot and it may even be streaming i saw that some of the um some of the streaming services i don't know if it's on tubi but some of them have been putting some of those films on there so clear cut it's definitely an underrated film i think you should should look out for it yeah
0: yep Cool. So moving to mine number eight is another very weird kind of zany film. And that is one starring Bill Paxton. And that's The Vagrant. <laughs> <laughs> so let me set up The Vagrant a little bit. And it, here's I kind of find these uh, letterbox taglines interesting sometimes. This one is he's not home alone. This is a businessman buys a house, but he has a hard time trying to get rid of its previous tenant. A dirty bum. And, <laughs> <laughs> oh, this movie is just, um, it's something else. If you haven't seen it, it's a pretty crazy ril- wild ride. But you've got Bill Paxton, and Michael Ironside in this movie. And it's Bill Paxton buys this new house. He's kind of this, um, to me, he seems like a typical like middle of the, re- you know, like middle level business person of the 90s with <laughs> is the kind of vibe I get from him. And he's uh, getting into this house, but there's this this vagrant that just keeps haunting him and won't leave him alone. And the hijinks he gets into with, you know, trying to call the police and, you know, is this vagrant real? Is he not? Is he harming him? Is he not? And just the wild ride that he goes on and thinking he's losing his sanity and how unhinged he becomes. I think it's just a really fun movie and a really wild ride. So.
1: This is one of those only in the 90s kind of yeah. movies, you know, and it is, it's crazy. You say it's so funny because I never saw it. And you mentioned that, that he's not home alone, but the best part of that is, first off, this has no relationship to home alone whatsoever. No, uh, I guess maybe you want to say someone invades somebody else's house. But like That's it. But the cover has Bill Paxton with his hands on his cheeks, home alone style <laughs> screaming with the silhouette of a bomb in the background. Yeah. Um, and I think we should mention that, you know, I, uh, we always have those actors that's like, who's that guy? But you know him, but you don't n- know who he is exactly. Marshall Bell, who plays the the hobo, under so much demented, weird makeup for most of the film, you know, where he looks like a monster almost that you can't see. But he's been in a ton of movies: Total Recall, Natural Born Killers, Standby Me, right? What's that? He was quato in total recall, right? Yeah, yeah, he, he was Quato. And in Starship Troopers, you might remember him as he's the when they go to that base that's been overrun by the bugs, he's the 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 general who's there, who's still there, who's freaking out and screaming and who's in he's in shock because the bugs have attacked. A tons of different films. Dick Tracy, in you know, and I, I think what was it? Nightmare on Elm Street too. He was in one of the Nightmare on Elm Street films, I believe. But he's been in a ton of films and here he is that character it's such a weird movie the tone is so off there were so many movies in the 90s where you're just how do i characterize this like it the tone of it is almost like a tim burton movie at some points or a joe dante film but it's it's more demented than that um it's a lot it's a it's a lot of fun i never bill and i had just saw it this past summer i think we we reviewed it for the podcast and we had never encountered it before, but it's such a weird, quirky little movie. It didn't quite make the list, but I put it on the honorable mentions for me. And I, I mean, the late great Bill Paxton—he's he's almost always fun. And at this point in time, he was in a lot of movies that people just didn't know about, and a lot of weird, dark comedies. He was another one called "The Dark Backward," about a a guy who works in a junkyard and grows an arm out of his back. And uh, <laughs> I think that I think. He wasn't the guy, but he was like one of the, you know, the the friend of one of the guys. But this movie is just so weird, but fun weird. And I think it has it is almost that tone that you'd expect in a children's film. But this is in no way a children's film. And it's a very dark comedy. And this is a roller coaster all the way. But it's a it's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you got me thinking with Marshall Bell. Did he come packaged in with Ironside? Because we were talking about wonder, Total Recall yeah. <laughs> and Starship Troopers. And- Ver, he,
1: someone called Verhoeven. Like, can you lend me the Verhoeven acting troop? Uh, just send them on in. And may, I bet if we were to dive down, we might find more of them in there, too. So maybe it was a whole... I remember I saw Colleen Camp here. I always remember she was the... Um, my main memory of her was that she was the uh, the maid in Clue. But, you know, for other reasons. Yeah. Um, but... <laughs> uh, I, I do like this movie a lot, and it is one of those unsung movies of the 90s. I don't think most people know about. And the last I looked, it was streaming on Tubi.
0: Yeah, I think that's where I had watched it. Uh, it was probably around the same time you guys did. It wasn't about a year ago or so when I first yeah. watched it. So, yeah, but that's a that's a fun one. Solid little fleck for sure. Yep. All right. What's your number seven, Nathan? okay that's a good question what is my number seven uh, my number
1: seven is actually i'm a little surprised it's this high on the list this is this is one probably not unlike you know uh, your, your amityville but for me it's uh stephen king's sleepwalkers <laughs> and it's a what a weird movie mick garris i don't know mick garris is one of those guys i really like him a lot like he's a cool guy that has he's almost like the ultimate fan, right? That that has found his way into filmmaking and loves Stephen King and horror. And he he's able to pull a lot of people together and pull a lot of really cool talents all together. Uh, when he makes films, I'm usually not as enthused about them, but I still like him. And I think that he brings enough energy and good nature. Like he's done a lot of Stephen King work, some of it good, some of it not as good. He was doing a lot of Stephen King TV movie work. Uh, some of it maybe off the basis of what he does here with Sleepwalkers. He did the TV version of The Stand, which actually, I think, a uh, budget aside, is actually quite good. Uh, it's got some great, like, uh, TV level acting, but it, it's it's a well put together production. I think it was a much better production than the film or the series that came out just last year. Um, I think it was on Paramount Plus or on, or uh, Peacock or one of those streaming services, I think the that '94 version is much better. And he did the '97 version of The Shining. Well, which is far more like Stephen King's book, but there's things the, there to like. This is very bizarre. It's based off of a Stephen King story that was written exclusively, I think, as a screenplay. So it never existed in short story form or any kind of form, novel form. And it just eventually becomes this film. And this is very 90s. You mentioned some of the cat violence at the beginning. We do have that. We follow this story of these creatures called sleepwalkers that seemingly are pulled from mythology, but I really don't know how true that is or where that reference is. There's a reference in the beginning. But I I don't know that I've encountered this before, except, you know, in in other films where we have cat like creatures like, you know, particularly Paul Schrader's 1982 remake of the cat people, which you and I spoke about last time I was on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Seems like a lot of that ports its way over into this film where you have this uh two sleepwalkers, they maybe the last of their kind, these kind of mythical creatures that have like uh some semblance of like feline dna in their in their being you know they are shapeshifters they kind of look like cats they also seem to have a lot of abilities that are sort of uncertain they can seemingly cloud your mind, they can pull the Jedi mind tricks on you. And they seem to maybe have telekinesis, too. It's hard to tell. It's like a grab bag of, uh, of abilities. But the one thing that seems to be true is in a classic vampire fashion, they need to eat the souls of the, uh, uh, basically like, uh, virgin souls, those who are innocent and they suck those souls and they can live off of that kind of like an energizer battery. For a certain amount of time before they have to do this again, it creates very lonely existence where they're nomads and they move on and on and on. And once they've stayed somewhere long enough for people to pick up on the fact that they're killing people, they they have to move on. And now there's only two of them left. The very creepy opening of this film. There's, first, there's the opening scene. Uh, but it's interesting because there's a mustachioed Mark Hamill there <laughs> sort of out of the blue. That's a fun, creepy sequence. It is very creepy. You see this house with, uh, again, the, the warning here for animal lovers. There's cats hanging from strings. It's a very stark and startling image. But it does set up a, a kind of horror movie that's very interesting because, on one hand, the way Mick Garris puts this together, it doesn't – nothing in Sleepwalkers feels 100% real. Now, in 1992, you think of the – like. Now we talk about how movies always reference the 1980s, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's nostalgia for the 80s. Well, in 92, you're talking about the same sort of distance by a little bit from like the 50s and 60s. And so yep. this sort of Norman Rockwell sort of universe is is being sort of satirized here in Sleepwalkers. And it attacks every, you know, that sort of modern uh, 1950s nuclear family kind of concept is busted all to pieces here because we see a mother and son in the opening sequences of sleepwalker dancing by the way to the old sleepwalker you know piece of music that they they begin to become romantically entangled would that be fair to say yeah <laughs> and yeah, <that's> fair. <laughs> in a very kind of creepy way we realize that these are the sleepwalkers and because they're two of them out of sort of i guess emotional necessity they are lovers as well as being mother and son because they're the last two so basically uh this is as good as it gets and They are on the prowl. They've just moved to a new town for someone whose soul or essence they can drain. And then enter Madchen and Mick, who coming off of Twin Peaks, she looks amazing in the film. But she is very much the kind of wholesome, cute girl next door type. And uh, the movie's got a lot of cameos from a lot of different people. Ron Perlman shows up at one point. You also have a sequence in a cemetery, the culmination that has everyone. Stephen King to Joe Dante to... Uh, Clive Barker and John Landis coming out of the woodwork. I think Sam Raimi shows up at some point. And there's just a lot of people all over the place in the film. It's a, I, but I do like this movie. The other aspect of the film is that the cats sense the sleepwalkers and are sort of the mortal enemies, even though sleepwalkers seem to have a lot of essence of cat within them. And so there's the, the cats are in some ways the heroes and you have this, this whole side element where there's a cop and he's sort of his his sidekick seems to be the cat not really but he the cat goes along is always with him and 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 at some point uh when he runs to follow the sleepwalkers the cat sort of uh takes uh takes matters his own hands and eventually we have hordes of cats sort of surrounding the sleepwalker house and i almost would have liked more of that kind of element in the film but it is a fun b movie monster movie it's a weird strange sexy creepy take on a 1950s monster movie that that goes the places that that 50s film couldn't go and i think that's what works about it is there's enough sincerity in what garris does that it actually is better than what they were shooting for i think because it really is like one of these you know attack of the cat creatures would be a completely acceptable title for this movie but it also happens to be called sleepwalkers also an excellent use of um the uh, Enya's Bodecai in here that plays at the end, that creepy little humming uh, song. And it works really well in the context of the film, I think.
0: Yeah. And it also builds, it starts, you get a little, and I've forgotten about that song and it builds a little bit at the beginning and you slowly hear it through. And I was thinking about, I knew this was going to be on your list and I was thinking about editing that in behind you, building up as you're talking, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, Amick, uh from Quinn Peaks, of course, fame is excellent in this movie. Uh, This is going to miss my list and just be in my honorable mentions. But I really do. um, It turned out a lot better than I expected from all the negative things I had heard about it. It's a really good movie uh, for about I can't remember where it kind of goes crazy at about the halfway point or maybe a little further. And it loses me a little bit. But this is a fun movie. This is another movie. I think there are a lot of movies in 92 that were just fun. And I think this is one of them. Yeah, maybe there's a little bit of disturbing stuff going on, but I think there's some I don't know. I I think it's a good time, I would say. Yeah. And I think
1: I think that Garris uses a lot of it in and in King as well. They use it to tell an interesting story. And I think, you know, we mentioned Emic, but Alice Krieg plays the mother sleepwalker and i've always liked her i think she's great she she definitely has that creepy sexy vibe going on in almost everything i've seen go a ghost story earlier did it and then she was creepy sexy as the board queen <laughs> later in first contact i thought you know no accounting for taste but in sleepwalker she really creates a very interesting character and i think what i had forgotten is that you know she does generate a certain amount of sympathy but she's also very villainous as well and the movie balances this semi-series tone with a lot of camp as the movie goes along, particularly when Ron Perlman, some of these
0: characters start to show up and you even have a couple of kills with some one-liners, it would have been Freddy Krueger worthy, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And I'm noticing this, I'm looking because I'm going through Letterboxd as we're talking about these movies. A lot of these movies that are making our list are hovering around or below that 3.0, you know, the three stars on Letterboxd. I don't know. I don't know if that's accurate. I don't know if that's just some piling on Nathan or what you think, but yeah, well, and
1: it's I think it depends too. to sort of what the star ratings, because for me, like to me, a three star or three and a half star film is perfectly capable of making a list, particularly in a year where maybe you don't have a lot of heavy hitters. Yeah, for me, a three and a half stars is a very, very and I think that might be what I have. Sleepwalkers is rated is a very
0: solid rating in my in my book. Yeah, I agree. And Sleepwalkers particularly was, I think, like a 2.6 on there. So that's why I was thinking that's maybe a little low than what I would give it. But
1: and it's definitely campy. It's definitely kind of silly and weird. Uh, For me, it's the it's the style. I love the Stephen King sort of universe. This fits perfectly into that. And it's just a little odder, I think, than your average Stephen King. It has a lot of issues with it. Um, Not everything in it works. But I think that for me, it's such a fun ride. That's why it's as high as it is. I'd, is it objectively better than the other three movies I mentioned? It probably isn't. But I fi- I think that I would find myself returning to it more
0: often than those other movies. Yeah, you don't have to convince me on that. I uh, I absolutely get where you're coming from. But um, is that all you got on Sleepwalkers? Yeah. <sighs> so now we move into Trey being weird territory. And I am I'm guessing you haven't seen this one, Nathan, which is probably pretty unusual. But my number seven is Rot, um, R-A-A-T. And that is another, that's a Hindi film um, from India. And this one I've been trying to track down for a while. This is, uh, whenever you look up Indian horror films, this is what a lot of them mention as the, kind of the beginning of that stuff, or an early version of it. And I'm, I'm trying to find, um, and this is directed by Ram Gopal, uh, Varma and I'm trying to find a good synopsis there's not really one that's brief so I'll try my best to kind of edit through this one but this says that the uh, Sharma family relocate to a semi-urban locality in a house that has a reputation the Sharma family consists of Mr. Sharma his wife Shalini Sharma and only daughter uh, many as they affectionately call her and their grandchild Bunty. Um, Strange things start happening with the return of a dead kitten and the brutal murder of Minnie's friend. So I'm going to leave it there. Um, But yeah, more cat violence. This is what I was talking about, but this is a very weird film. Nathan, um, I think you have. You've seen some of the Indonesian, the earlier Indonesian stuff, like Mystics in Bali and um, uh, the Queen of Black Magic and that, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely have. So it's got that feel, even though it's almost a decade later of those. It has kind of that same charm to it, I guess I would say. And like the, you know, the low budget, like very weird special effects. But I think there's some effective horror stuff in this one. And you're following this girl who I think is a very likable character. And as we kind of follow her and get through this story, like, yeah, something weird's happening. I think the horror stuff is very effective um, when we get into it, even if it is a little bit cheesy. Now, this one's hard to track down. I had to end up buying it on DVD because it's one of those that you can't really find very easily online, even if you're not doing it through streaming services, if you catch my drift there. Um, but again, it's yeah. it's in Hindi, so it's not like something you're going to be able to just watch pick up and watch um I think it's a little long um at 127 minutes but I don't think anything's really wasted it's just a lot of character building and and while it's pretty straightforward I really did get invested and felt like they were properly fleshed out so um this is a cool film with some creepy moments and it doesn't hold back in certain areas so That's my take on Rot from 92, which means night in Hindi, by the way. And that makes a lot of sense. But it's kind of weird. We're talking about the cat thing. And this is the whole crux of this thing kind of happens with a cat dying or them finding a cat in the basement. So that continues that theme. And I've
1: never seen this film and I am interested to check it out. So we'll see. And yeah, it's interesting. I think some of the Hindi films and particularly the Indonesian films, one of the things they have in common is I think because of the style of filmmaking and the, and the equipment that was being used to film at the time, you do have this whole swath where like everything from the eighties and the nineties looks about the same.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, so
1: there are movies made in like 90 to almost like 96. And if you were to see them, you wouldn't necessarily be surprised if someone told you they were filmed in 1986 right. or 87. <laughs> and so, yeah, uh, but I, but even in, in, within that, uh, both, both regions turned out a lot of interesting films, and um, I'm I'm looking forward to checking this one out.
0: Yeah, if you can find it, it's good. I had to buy a used DVD off of Amazon. It was in pretty good condition, though, but um, it was like 20 bucks or so. It wasn't anything like Cemetery Man levels. <laughs> but uh, it's very unfortunate that we don't have good releases for these types of films, because anything when I was looking up and doing, uh, looking into some Indian horror about a year ago, this was on everyone's, uh, or a couple lists at least that I saw that you know this was one of the classic Indian horror films. So it's just unfortunate there's no easier way to see it.
1: Yeah, that's true of a lot of these films. Um, I mentioned that Hong Kong film, The Cat, that uh, also a very weird off the wall thing that we might mention later. But like it's uh, that one too is very hard to track down, and it's 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 kind of a shame that some of these movies have fallen into that that scenario. You know.
0: Yep. So uh, watch this one if you can. I really recommend it. I think a lot of people would enjoy it, especially if they like those kind of cheesier Indonesian films, which I think they take themselves seriously, but I think they're just inherently cheesy. And I think that's a little bit here too. Yeah, for sure. All right. What is
1: your number six, Nathan? So my number six is a film that in some ways, I think I maybe expected it returning to it to be higher on this list, but, uh, and I have some issues with it, but I Still, at the end of the day, I'm still a fan. This is Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, and one of the main things that struck me, even when I saw it, I think when I was younger, is how sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, how horny this movie is. <laughs> how really, you know, this is almost like, you know, Universal in recent years has the, uh, you know, tried for what the dark universe. And this, uh, you know, I think what people, when I when you look at the larger picture of things, you have Bram Stoker's Dracula this year and then a few years later you've got wolf right and then you also have you get the the, the sexy version of wolf you get the sexy version of uh mary shelley's frankenstein mm-hmm. and you get you know mary riley which just got kind of a little sexy you know and 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 interview the vampire and all that so we almost had this the cinemax after dark universe right that's <laughs> right? kind of like dracula seems to be sort of hitting on something like that. And it wasn't the vampires were sort of making a comeback at this point. You have, okay, there's a, a movie that'll show up in my honorable mentions here. And uh, there were also some some not so good movies. Like there's one called The Sleep of the Vampire that was very blunt in its, uh, its depictions of of vampire sex. Uh, around the same time, you had some direct-to-video movies I think the, the To Die For series, uh, which had a couple entries, was like that. And there was also that very woeful tale of a vampire. I think I mentioned earlier with Julian Sands Bram Stoker's Dracula, though, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, looks fantastic. I mean, this is an amazing looking movie. A lot of the the shots are created, though, using old school film techniques and matte paintings and things like that. So we're not looking at CGI in most of these cases. We're look, looking at a lot of old school film tricks, the same sort of things that might have been used on some of the older variations of Dracula. Is this my favorite variation? No, it's not. It's a it's, uh, I jokingly have called some of those Jill Schumacher movies, uh, Batman movies, the Batman, the Vegas Floor Show. This might be Dracula, the Vegas Floor Show, if we're being, you know, all things being equal. But it looks so wonderful, uh, and the, and the way that some of the shots are done, where you see the carriage going over the sort of cracked and broken bridgeways of of uh, Romania, and then this big eye, sort of just uh, to demonstrate that someone is waiting and watching for Jonathan Harker to arrive. You know, those are sorts of visual tricks that you might see when we talked about Nosferatu. This is a very different approach than than Werner Herzog's Nosferatu. That had a very naturalistic. This is this is a hundred percent sort of operatic, right? You know, it almost is uh, maybe sort of Vegas floor show. It's it's Dracula the Opera. It has that sort of uh, vibe to it, and everything is just pitched at such a high level that uh, it's like the whole movie is constantly screaming in your face visually and and emotionally and everything else and uh again one of the things that did surprise me is just how much of role sex plays in this it was certainly an undercurrent of bram stoker's original novel it's been an undercurrent of every variation of dracula i've ever seen you know lugosi has some of that sex appeal going on underneath his performance langella has a lot more of it on the you know on the top along with his little pompadour whatever he's got going on (laughs) is uh in that film i really like that portrayal and that film particularly on this one just it's so upfront that even the point when you have like a Dracula in his werewolf form he's still getting kind of like jiggy with it I mean it's it's uh there's there's moments in this film that seem like when people should be worried about all other things there's still sexes at the forefront and that's an interesting choice I think I don't know that it always works because it gives the film a very weird almost almost campy vibe I don't know if you felt that way Trey but I think underneath all that Dracula is a as a visual experience is a work of art. I think it looks amazing. And I think that Gary Oldman has a very bizarre all over the place performance, but I like it. Like he gets to be a Dracula with all these different facets to him. And I kind of like that. Uh, A lot of the performances are all over the map. I will say that. Uh, But again, it's it's just, it's an interesting choice here to make everyone so sort of sexually obsessed for lack of a better word. It creates a, a feverish, hitch to the movie that almost tilts into into unintentional humor i think there's one point where even even uh anthony hopkins as abraham van helsing is like motorboating mina harker at one point you know right before he, <laughs> yes he puts a crucifix on her forehead like it's just very very odd and so as an overall experience i think it's as an event it works better than maybe it does as a full movie and it certainly is a dracula adaptation But I think it's hard to argue that this movie isn't very, very influential. And it is that kind of visual art house sort of horror movie that I do love. And I I, to me, it goes on the same level as like a movie like A Company of Wolves. It's a hot mess. But man, it's a it's a fun, hot mess.
0: Yeah. Um, And I'll tell you when I I think I might have mentioned when I first watched this film, I didn't like it at all. And um, upon rewatch here recently, I came up quite a bit on the movie. Now I did. It's not going to make my list, and like you said, there are several other versions of Dracula. I think I would take both of the early Nos- Nosferatu films over this one, as well as, of course, Bela Lugosi's Dracula. I'd argue that the Borman langella movie is better too as a film. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but you can't deny the kind of the filmmaking that goes into this and what Coppola is trying to do. So I do appreciate it a lot more, and especially the ending. I really liked that whole, I don't know, last 15, 20 minutes of the movie. But it did come up a good deal on my end, but not enough to crack my list.
1: And I think that's fair. I mean, it was very lauded at the time, and I think that's what's surprising is like it and it had almost a prestigious uh, feel to the the feedback it was getting, you know, that it wasn't even being sort of considered in the it was It was being treated almost more like one of these like uh merchant ivory like you know sort of period dramas you know uh and it, as opposed to a horror film, and yet I still think that Coppola manages a lot of the the horror elements and particularly the costuming and the makeup effects are are amazing you know the the variations of Dracula are very very cool to
0: to look at yep. Absolutely, I agree. Um, So let's see, I'm at my number six, and mine is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So I don't know how you feel about this, Nathan. I am a big fan of the series, but I didn't know what to expect going and watching this because I had watched the series before I watched this movie. And I just think this movie is a lot of fun. You know, you've got um, Donald Sutherland in it. You've got Rutger Hauer in it. Um, I think Christy Swanson does a pretty cool job I think it's uh, markedly different from what Joss Whedon would put on the small screen later. But I think this one's cool and I think it's just a lot of fun. And if you are a fan of the TV series but haven't watched this one, I think you should. I mean, I think it's a lot of campy fun. I don't have a whole lot to say anymore about this one. It's just another one of those movies that I think's a good time.
1: I'm not gonna even mention Luke Perry or Paul Rubens. Oh my god. Uh, or Hillary Swank for that matter. It's a deep cast, okay? It is a, it's a yeah, it's a very, very deep, deep, deep film. David Arquette. David Arquette. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, again, it's a kind of the, the age difference thing. For me, this was the first exposure to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And the thing right off the bat was man. And I think what's hard about movies like this, particularly these movies in the 90s, how do you beat some of these titles? Like, how does a movie called Drop Dead Fred, no matter how good it is, match up to, you know, to the title, like a Buffy the Vampire Slayer? I just remember being so, like, charmed by the title of that film <laughs> that when I finally saw the movie, it was almost a, a secondary, you know, it was almost an afterthought. I felt like that movie existed so it could be called. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I think the the irony is that when the, the the show first begins, at least in those, I remember watching it the night that it like aired and thinking, wow, this is, the tone of this isn't isn't campy at all. This isn't no. what I wanted. And it, I think the show builds over time and it does a very interesting thing. And it, I think, is maybe markedly, for for at least a chunk of its run, is markedly better than the Buffy the, it, it, a very different animal. Because I think the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie doesn't take itself very seriously, it isn't necessarily trying to say much about anything at all you know it's it's there's movies coming out around the same time like my boyfriend's back and i think it fits into that sort of vein of films a little bit better than say uh, or De- the movie, same movie from the same summer, Death Becomes Her. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's a, a film more like that, but it is fun. It, you know, I don't know if anybody in this movie was a teenager when they <laughs> no. when they were making it. I mean, heck, they were probably closer to Donald Sutherland's age at the time than a <laughs> teenager. It's weird to see Sutherland, someone like Sutherland. I want to see him in more of the film. And Rucker Howard, they kind of just are on the edges of the movie, but they're fun, and it is a fun movie, and it's a good, I think, sort of gateway kind of horror movie, even if there's very little in the way of horror. I think one of my favorite scenes is when the principal comes in and it's just putting detention slips on all the dead vampires foreheads.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I think um, a problem with a movie like this, as opposed to it being run over a series, is I think it does um, kind of move along at a pretty quick pace and kind of try to put a lot in a in a short time. So I don't know. I still think it's fun. I agree. It's a, it, anyway. it's a does what it says on the tin kind of movie. <laughs> exactly. All right, that's that's all I really got on that one. We're moving into our top five, and I feel like we're going to start having... I, we haven't had a lot of crossover to this we point. We may have the same top five. I have no idea. <laughs> I'm thinking possible. we're going to have a pretty close. I think yeah. we're at least going to have four of the same top five. So what's your number five?
1: My number five is a, is a, a film that I guess film may even be... Uh, a, a strong word because I think when it was presented this way, it wasn't necessarily uh, presented as a film. But it's uh, what I think is maybe one of the, the true forebear or, or, or sort of uh, ancestors, descendants, if you will, of the War of the Worlds, of that uh, Mercury Theater broadcast, War of the Worlds, that was put out by uh, Orson Welles and put through everybody into a panic and i think that uh this is called ghost watch it was directed by leslie manning it aired on bbc halloween 1992 and they broadcast this as an investigation into the supernatural it's hosted by michael parkinson who's a tv chat show uh host well known at the time and so all of these people who show up would be people that you would be used to seeing on the bbc right and as uh, hosts and then they kind of it's really the begin. I don't want to say it's the beginning, because people have cited other movies that sort of are the precursors to film footage, but I think the kind of film footage, the sort of mockumentary style that I appreciate uh sort of has its roots here in ghost watch uh because then you follow this camera crew it's basically almost like a puff piece like a halloween puff piece uh to look at a haunted house in britain it's supposed to be one of the most haunted and this this, the story that's developed there about this ghost called pipes and the tragic sort of backstory that involves that character and the things that the young girl who lives in this apartment uh in his house sees and hears and then what the crew begins to experience it's all done very very well done very convincingly it seems like something that's hokey but possibly being staged by the uh by the bbc but but not necessarily to the degree that it really is you know as this story unfolds and the world sort of uh Opens up, uh, but it stays within its character. Uh, I know a lot of people are big fans of the WNUV Halloween special that came out a few years ago uh, and was done to make it look like something recorded on VHS. Uh, that's a hit or miss for me in terms of some things, and it works. Some things don't. But I think Ghost Watch is a much more compelling version of the same concept. But for me, it really, really, it's really creepy. It really ramps up, and when you see it in that con, to see it in that context of, hey, this is just a uh, a tv program a news special and then watching as a supernatural sort of overtakes it i still have a lot of appreciation for it even though it's maybe a little bit dated i think it's an excellent piece of sort of uh ghost storytelling you know the 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 essence of a campfire story done in this style and it's almost a remake of a of so of a couple of uh or adaptation i should say of a couple of very popular sort of radio stories from the time that involved investigators going in and telling a story so convincing that eventually they're face to face with the real thing.
0: Yeah. And, um, Watch will come up a little later for me, but I'll go ahead and talk about it now and say that I really do enjoy this film a lot. And it's kind of that, it is that predecessor to, um, what we'd see a lot of the found footage and mockumentary type stuff later. And I compare this one to I don't know if you're familiar, Nathan, but it seems like almost and it's maybe a lighter version and maybe not as so self-serious. But as like a uh, ghost hunters or a ghost adventures or something, what they would do on like a Halloween night recording, like where they're recording the whole night. Um, that's kind of the vibe I got, but much, yeah. much better, much better. Don't let that <laughs> discourage <laughs> you. But um, no, I like Ghost Watch a lot. I think the ending ghost places that I really love and I think is really uh kind of gutsy for the time and yeah it's very smart too in the way it it unfolds i think
1: Um, yeah it's a bit of a slow
0: build but once it gets there i think it's really satisfying
1: And last thing i want to say because i think we're we're dancing around a couple of things but let's talk about the ghost at the heart of the story and that backstory and those things not talk about it in specific details but is that not creepy i mean i think this is a legitimately creepy movie like a uh, horror movies very rarely you know, like I like them for their ambiance and for their style and for the tropes, but a lot of times it's hard to get a movie that kind of creeps me out or lingers with me and i this movie did,
0: yeah, and especially when you're involving like the children and the role that they play in this, it's yeah, yeah, it's very creepy, I agree, all right, so my number five, and i I know this has gotta be on your list and probably higher, but uh my number five is brain dead or dead alive. <laughs> and um, this one's just a lot of fun. I remember this was one where I first saw it and it's a very much a gross out movie for a lot of it. Um, there's a lot of blood. There's a lot of gore, but it doesn't take itself seriously at all. And if you're not familiar, you know, this is I think Peter Jackson's second film that he directed yeah,
1: after bad taste. Yep.
0: Yeah. And um, man, it's just a lot of off the wall fun. I think we get a, some good performances from our lead and also our um, main, like our love interest. Um, I really like their, their relationship and their back and forth. Man, this movie is just insane. I don't even know how to describe it, but it's just completely offbeat and off the wall.
1: It is definitely that I will definitely be talking about this one a little bit later. I have a kind of funny story that ties into it, but it's wild. It is absolutely wild. It's a must see. If you were a horror fan, it's a must see and i would argue if you're even a dark comedy fan it's probably a must see there are few movies honestly i think that are as crazy have as crazy energy as this movie after i had seen you know when when you see sam Raimi's evil dead 2 you think well how can anyone quite top that weird mix of of you know the three stooges and and insane gore and yet dead alive sort of just goes for it and i think is is even crazier in, in, in many, many ways (laughs) than, than evil did too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's especially a crazy scene. I don't want to step on anything you're going to talk about, but a um, pretty insane wild scene involving a monkey. Um, So (laughs) you (laughs)
1: could actually say there's an insane wild scene involving. And then, it like mad libs put the number of words you could put in there involving a blender uh, a lawn lawnmower a, bl- <laughs> a
0: lawnmower, a lawn gnome porridge uh a priest uh you know <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely but um yep i'm sure we'll hear more about that later like you said but let's move into your number four nathan so my number four, and I think there's maybe
1: a little bit of connective point here because it is uh, Army of Darkness. Okay, <laughs> from '92, and I think Army of Darkness is part of the movie that was responsible for me seeing Dead Alive when I did, or Brain Dead, everyone would call it. Um, but I won't talk too much about that right now. I love Army of Darkness. I think it's almost a little bit, you know, we talk about all the different reasons to put movies on the list. I you know was it this year, or the right year? I think technically speaking, Army of Darkness actually does release in '93. I remember going to a second run theater and seeing it with my dad. So I can't quite remember because I saw it like around, you know, it was probably early in the year, like January or February, but it was a second run theater. And it was a great experience, Had a ton of fun. I do think that I kind of view it, even though it's a sequel to The Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2, I, in a sense, sequel, you know, in some ways, they just keep remaking the film and moving on from there. But Army of Darkness, it really is maybe more of a dark fantasy and not even all that dark. I'm a little surprised that this film has an R rating, honestly, because I think it it dials the violence way down to the point of almost uh, Ray Harryhausen antics, right? You know, mm-hmm. uh, a point when a body is cut apart, it literally reassembles itself as, I'm pretty certain, a paper cutout. But, <laughs> um, you know, and I love the lo-fi effects here, but this was my first experience with Bruce Campbell's Ash and this character and this world. And it just seemed, you know, I think at the time... Uh, somebody like roger ebert d- didn't give this very high rating but he said you know it's just well we've seen it d- been there done that uh, i liked it when they didn't evil did too he goes of course for people who are you know 12 or 13 years old this might all seem breathtakingly original and it did to me in sense both original but also not because Ramy is doing kind of the, the joe dante thing here uh, and incidentally i got to see this movie when we went to that dollar theater we watched this and then we were so enthused by this film that we went and saw matinee that was also (laughs) showing by joe dante so it was a great double feature i think dante and Raimi have a lot of uh, crossover points and part of this is the amount of old tv and old movies and, and references that are peppered throughout this film but are done i think not just as like random throwaway homages but he takes them and he mashes them together in a way that creates something weird and strangely new, you know, uh, the fact that Klaatu, Nicto" Nikto, the, the words that initiate the robot Gort in, in Day the Stood Still, I recognize those words, but here they are, you know, they're, they're part of what starts the Necronomicon and all these weird references to Western films and war films. And then here are the, 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 um, the skeletons from, from Jason and the Argonauts, but it's all welded together in such a bizarre experience. It's like, You ate a whole bunch of pixie sticks and watched like 10 hours of Nick at night, you know, (laughs) then you come out with Army of Darkness and Bruce Campbell and his performance in the movie. It's it. This is the you know, we see Bruce Dowd and in the Ash versus Evil Dead, he's definitely the sort of like self-absorbed schlump. But I think what is interesting about the Evil Dead films at this era is that he's still sort of playing them half, half foot in, the same way that Kurt Russell plays the character in, B- in Big Trouble in Little China. There's half foot into the hero mold and a half a foot into the, like, stooge mold. You know and that's what makes the character so appealing he's bumbling his way through things and yet he's still sort of he's got the heroic good looks and, and and the moment when he's introducing them he's finally had it and he's introducing all these medieval people to his his boomstick to his shotgun it's such a quotable film it's such a fun film is it a horror movie i don't know that it is but it has all it plays with all of the tropes of horror films it's a sequel to two horror films and it it's such an immense amount of fun I don't like I and I love the soundtrack even and and I know that Joseph DeLuca does the main score Danny Elfman has the sort of army of darkness the actual theme music that the army marches to but it's it's great great fun I I think you know for me it was sort of one of those formative movies when you see it you're like wow this is the kind of this is the kind of wildness I want movies to be like you know. Uh, Even though I think you could look at this movie, uh, uh, a seasoned critic could say, well, you've just taken this and this and this and taped it all together. Well, that's what the 90s was about. Damn it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like you're going to be stealing my thunder a lot here coming up, Nathan. Uh, But but that's going to. No, no, no. Don't don't apologize at all. But I'll talk to a little bit about Army of Darkness here. And it's so it's maybe my least favorite in the Evil Dead film franchise. But that's that's saying a lot like that's that, that's that, a good yeah I mean, you know.
1: well if the first three i don't know you know i don't uh, I'm, I'm not a big a fan of the
0: remake oh i love the remake but i love this one as well i think um I, again it's a completely different tone from the first two movies i think because even though we have that slapstick comedy in the second one i think this takes it to a new level like you were saying the stooges or looney tunes type level i think this has a lot in common with in its tone as some of gremlins two does and where gremlins two didn't necessarily resonate with me. This one absolutely does. And like you said, there's so many quotable lines. There's so many cool moments and I think the, um, you know, the army of the deadites is such a cool concept and to see that in action and this medieval fighting. um, Yes, it's goofy. Yes, it's zany, but I do love the movie.
1: Yeah, it's just a good time. And I think that I totally think that this qualifies as a gateway horror film like i would i've showed this one to my kids i don't think it has a lot of uh, objectionable content at least in the theatrical version i think there's a version out there that maybe has a little bit of a love scene in it but even that's ridiculous you know yeah I and i think honestly when i watched it i think campbell drops the f word once or twice but i don't know that there's much else that would really get this film an r rating i think it maybe got an r rating on the basis of its other films and maybe Raimi's you know, sort of uh, resume as a horror director, because I I think nowadays it would absolutely not be rated R. Yeah, I agree.
0: Is that all you have on Army of Darkness? Yeah, except go, if you haven't seen it,
1: and you're listening to this podcast, you probably have, but if not, man, (laughs) check it out. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Moving into my number four, it is, we've talked about this director a lot already tonight, and that is Paul Verhoeven's Basic Instinct. And what we get here is... I don't know if it's my penchant for all things like giallos and those crime thrillers, but this kind of fits into that. And it does take a lot of twists and turns in the, along the way. But I think you can say that, uh, I well, first of all, that Michael Dr- Douglas plays a great, um, you know, a-hole of a character, but also that Sharon Stone is just off her rocker <laughs> at points in this movie. And I don't know. I love the I love the back and forth. I love the whole you know um a cop trying to figure out this murder and the back and forth between stone and douglas yeah it's just a pretty pretty dark movie pretty bleak movie but i don't know i really enjoyed it i don't know how you feel about this one nathan you (laughs) know i haven't
1: seen this film in years i was never a huge huge fan of it i didn't actually get a chance to rewatch it for the show because i i was kind of up in the air on whether it was horror or not but i mean man we talk about that that kind of um you know thriller that stems from a lot of these movies and this had a huge impact on it you know and i think it's interesting because you i think basic instinct definitely has one of those plots that is almost pseudo giallo you know what i mean i mean the Mm -hmm. ice pick killer and it has all those elements and sort of picks up that vibe and i mean sharon stone is i think very good in the film you know there's a lot. Verhoeven's an interesting filmmaker. And I think around this time, he's he's kind of lean, leaning into the, the sleaze a bit, you know. I think Joe Esterhaas was along for the ride yeah. here. We eventually get that kind of culminates into Showgirls. But I think that uh, it's definitely an interesting film. It's definitely, you know, when you look at some of those movies that are sort of like indicative of the 1990s, I mean, I think Basic Instinct is definitely, particularly this early. Uh, first half of the nineties is very formative and very influential.
0: Yeah. And you bring up the sleaze there's a lot of sex in this movie, but I wouldn't say any of it's titillating or sexy. It's, um, it's a little over the top at some points, like a just maybe make the scene stop or last a little less, but um, no, I, I stand by it as really liking this. And again, is that my love of Giallo's kind of shifting into this or my, you know, the Brian De Palma kind of feel, going into it. I don't know. But anyway, that's my number four. So what do you got for number three, Nathan? So my
1: number three is Candyman, Bernard Rose's Candyman. I think it's an excellent ghost story, but not, you know, it's a great sort of um, supernatural slasher movie, but not, you know, it's uh, a great sort of social issues movie but not and i think it blends all those things together the but nots kind of weaving into one another until you have a movie that's very singularly sort of its own thing and it based off of a clive barker story but i think maybe the best directed and the best adaptation of a barker story because where clive barker has directed a lot of his own films and and sort of want you know he he's a very interesting author i think because barker is a horror author, for sure. I mean, absolutely, there's no argument. But he goes on to so many weird places that I think sometimes you can categorize him as a dark fantasy author even more so than that, you know? He gets into these blood-soaked Phantom Azgora landscapes that are so strange and so over the top and so beyond translation to the screen that you just get lost in them sometimes. I mean, the Hellraiser movies border on camp simply because what they're showing on screen is so unbelievable. And so to take a story like Candyman and what Bernard Rose does, I think is to create a world that feels so realistic that a Candyman, that this kind of folkloric monster can exist within it. And this world of Cabrini Green and how realistic it feels, particularly in the nineties, like the the, the kind of tensions that the movie is capturing. And then of course, Tony Todd, I think Virginia Madsen and Tony Todd are excellent in this film. I, I think Madsen probably doesn't get enough credit. Uh, Todd gets exactly the crazy deserves. I think he's a fascinating monster and he's the next level. For me, this is the kind of quality in the level, you know, this was taking this, this nightmare on Elm street and those types of movies and those types of boogeyman and taking it to a level of, of art.
0: Yeah. And, um, I'll be talking about Candyman a little later, but, um, it's an absolutely, uh, it's an excellent film. I'll say that for now. Okay, so is that all you have on Candyman, Nathan? Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll, I'll I know you have it, so I'll that's, <laughs> uh, I won't go any further. Yeah. So my uh, top three films have been mentioned. It's just the matter of order. So number three, I actually have Ghost Watch, and we talked a bit about Ghost Watch earlier. So all I'll say is, if you haven't checked out Ghost Watch, which I think a lot of people probably haven't, go check that out. I think it's pretty easy to find. I think I might have caught it on YouTube or something. But if you can track down ghost watch definitely go check that one out so what is your number two nathan so this is where it kind of goes back and forth i think my number two
1: is brain dead dead alive um just crazy balls to the wall even literally i don't remember <laughs> there's so much stuff hitting the wall in this film so we rent we have we had seen army of darkness a few times my my whole family is a fan of it. They really might. And they love that character, that Ash character, sort of bumbling, making a side, saying crazy things. And then the chainsaw arm. And, but it was all fun. And again, like I say, it's almost like a PG 13 level, right? So when we were watching, God, it was probably Leprechaun or something, some Vidmark movie, right? Or Trimark. And they're the ones that end up distributing this in the, in, in the United States as dead alive. And, we watched that trailer and there's a scene where the priest says something like, I'll kick ass for the Lord. And then, you know, uh, <laughs> Timothy Baum's Lionel character comes out with that push mower strapped to his chest. And, you know, it's like party's over and he turns it on. Like those scenes made us think, oh, this is going to be an army of darkness and evil dead. And we rented we had rented army of darkness again. We liked it so much. and We got dead alive and it was going to be a double feature on New Year's Eve. And keep in mind that at this point, I'm in like the ninth grade. So I'm, you know, I, I'm not all that old. And then my siblings are like two, each one going down is like two years younger. So eventually you get some kids here in elementary school that are watching Ted alive. <laughs> uh, and we turn it on. And I think I think early on, this, that scene opens on Skull Island, right? So you get a yeah. King Kong reference yeah. right off the bat. So my dad and I are like, oh, cool. And then our body parts are getting chopped off that have the bite on them and uh man the first thing you notice is wow this looks kind of realistic like what the, i don't know if i'm gonna deal how well i'm gonna deal with this right this is a this is quite far away from the cardboard cutout stuff Of form, you know you're just like wow that's that's pretty intense and then it just goes nuts like around the time when when mom gets bitten by the 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 sumatran rat monkey like and then with the stop motion, but you get this love of, we talked about this. One of the things I see in the 90s, people have such, there's such a love for the older films and the older kind of uh, art types. You know, we talk about Sleepwalkers and and Dracula and Army of Darkness and then these kind of, and even Ghost Watch going back to like the the, the the Mercury Theater stuff. It's just such a love of the old um, old films that you, you know, now nostalgia is a thing that is bandy back and forth. I think at this time, People were taking this and creating new things out of it, and that's what was exciting about it. So uh, you see a lot of that in Brain Dead, but it just I've never seen it taken to the level. Even to this day, I don't know that I've seen a movie as splattery uh, as Dead Alive. I probably have, but not done with the same level of energy. It just sustained madness at some point. One, uh, it, and it keeps going. There's a point when he takes this mutant baby to the... To the trying to even describe these sequences, he's taking it to the park and he's banging its head against the side of the lake. <laughs> it's such a bad taste uh, which was his previous film uh, that it's it, it just uh, what, what did uh, Ebert say about Evil Dead 2? He said, this movie isn't in bad taste. It's about bad taste. And I think that's about right. Like it just wants to constantly shock you. But in a gleeful kid in a school, you know, it's not People always seem surprised to learn that the the Peter Jackson made this film and Lord of the Rings. But I see it. You know, I see the kid that would sit around reading Tolkien making a film like this. It's, you know, the same madness inherent in here shows up later in Lord of the Rings in different ways. I think this is a fabulous, fascinating movie, um, even though at one level it is just a splattery mess. Right. But (laughs) something you said earlier, I love the relationship and the sweetness of the relationship between yes. uh Lionel and Shakita, who's his girlfriend. And you know, but they get to perform in these such weird circumstances, you know, that they even have a bit of dialogue that goes something like, Your mother ain't my dog. Well, not all of it, as he pulls the tail <laughs> out of her mouth. Okay. <laughs> I mean, and then you've got the priest character, and you have the crazy lecherous uncle, and you have this sustained attack sequence. And then when mom comes back, I mean, it's just you don't get to catch your breath at all till the movie's over. And at that point, my whole family is in there. My dad, I think at many points wanted to turn off, but it's like I can't because what will I not see if I turn this off? Like a movie is like threatening you like, hey, you won't get you'll you'll never know as bad as this was. What do you think? What do you think I'm saving for the last half? And (laughs) I think we were rewarded by the fact that we all went to bed feeling kind of weirded out. Like, what did I just watch? But, man, um, and, you know, it's a this thing is not on Blu-ray. It's not on 4K. I hear I hear that Jackson's making rumblings. It should be coming soon. But, man, this uh, this needs a Blu-ray release. At least you need this gore and beautiful uh, high def.
0: Yeah, I think every time I've watched it, I've had to watch it on YouTube. But a couple a couple things like when the mom comes back, that reminded me. It seemed like it was straight out of something like Pink Floyd's The Wall just very surrealistic and very like over the top. Yeah. It's like an old Genesis video or something. Yeah. And then there's a very a giant paper mache ass, by the way. Yes. (laughs) Um, And there's a very cool scene in a kitchen involving like a light bulb that I really love. And it stands out to me that I forgot to mention earlier. It's a very cool image. So, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but
1: yeah. I do. It, it, but that's the funny part is like there's hundreds. It's probably hundreds of scenes that you simply forget because this movie is that inventive. Like there's there's almost never a moment when something bizarre and weird that you wouldn't have thought of is. I mean, when when his mother gets out, of, you know, she's trying to cross the street and gets hit by the trolley. I mean, there's just so much madness in this movie that. at one point there's so much blood that he's just doing the classic like silent movie routine and he's running and he's not going anywhere (laughs) yes
0: yeah yeah but and that makes you makes you think like there's only there's some really good movies i feel like it's some weird weird movies that came out this year but um only a few that are considered like classics and i think maybe dead alive isn't quite considered that but i think it's I mean, my number five, or one I think are all really good, solid films. I
1: agree. I, they're they, to me, they're classics. They're movies that I would put up against almost anything that's to released today.
0: Yep. All right, so that was your number two, right? Yes, Is that where we're at. So my number two, um, we talked a good deal about, and that's Army of Darkness. I also went back and forth on my number one and number two, but ended up on Army of Darkness. So um, not much more to say about that. I think I talked good deal about it earlier i think it's funny that this movie comes out and then there is a movie like dead alive or brain dead that puts it kind of to shame in the the over the topness but yeah so what is your number one nathan i have no idea what your number one's gonna be i'm looking at the movies and i know it's not hellraiser three it's not hellraiser three it's house four no i'm just kidding it's
1: not house four and it's it's uh so it actually is. And I'm adjusting my Letterbox rating because I see it's a half star off from what it should be. But uh, well, last I rated it was probably years ago. It's probably gonna be a little bit divisive, uh, I think, for some people, because I you know there's probably a lot of people who don't like this one as much as I do. It is a very it's a very strange film. And I and, and, and because of the nature of it, it was also probably a film that very much disappointed a lot of people. This is Twin Peaks Firewalk with me david lynch's twin peaks and i was not when i first saw this film after watching and I, I came i remember when twin twin peaks was on the air but i was a young kid and my parents were like nope you can't watch any of this and that was the right call um but and then when i first saw twin peaks fire walk with me i i, I binge watched twin peaks with my wife and then we watched fire walk with me and i'm like what the hell is this i don't get it at all uh and then uh then David Lynch comes back and does Twin Peaks this you know the return and that is very much that's when you realize that Firewalk with me was not a fluke at least in David Lynch land (laughs) and that's where Lynch wanted to head the entire time because I would argue Twin Peaks the return is even weirder than Firewalk with me um and I think as a person who I would cite Lynch as one of my top five I think favorite filmmakers I think that Twin Peaks Firewalk with me is a film that when you the more you see it the more it does develop its own um, identity and you're able to get, there's so much strange arcana going on in this movie. There's just so much weird stuff. Uh, and a lot of Lynch films are like that. Sometimes it's Lynch being Lynch for the sake of himself. And it's hard, I think for a, an audience to always get on the right wavelength with that. But I think that there's a story and it's hard to because twin peaks Firewalk with me. It's weird. It's a, sequel prequel where does it land you know there are so many different things going on and when you start to see the sort of the missing pieces part that adds even more of this in to even talk about the plot is almost useless it it does it does pick up in some ways after the film but it goes back and explains parts of the story involving laura palmer who's the shows up in episode one of twin peaks as a dead corpse you know i think that people didn't know what to make of it it was such a dark strange absurd surreal film there are parts of it that i still uh, don't even know what to do with you know uh it's very hard to get into uh, where, whereas twin peaks the tv show i think had a cast of characters it was playing with that sort of what you would typically expect from a tv show and and kind of norman rockwell views of america this is what lynch does right and then peel it away and see the dark rotting underneath in a horror way but there were characters you could really glom onto in the TV show. I think Fire Walk With Me is very um, hard to parse in a lot of ways. But when you get down to Laura Palmer and what happens to her and the darkness at the heart of this, I think this is a legitimate horror film. It's horrifying. It deals with issues of abuse, of violence towards women, of of rape and molestation. But it deals with all these things in a very strange, dreamlike way. And yet, I don't think Lynch sort of pulls back from me, but it. it's a waking nightmare with a tragic center to it. And I think it actually... At first, when I first saw it, I thought this is just a mess, and it it, almost—it's not doing anything I want related to the TV show. But it gives the TV show, I think, a a deeper, more tragic core than it previously had. And I think Lynch is doing some really brilliant things with it. It, What seemed pretentious at the time, I think, watching it was was a little bit more inventive and a little bit more sort of, uh, I think, experimental. Because we would see other filmmakers try things like this and get lauded for it, and I think. Lynch is just throwing it out at a time when people didn't know what to do with it with a with a property that people loved precisely because even though it was weird, it still worked within the boxes of what they thought was acceptable. But I'd say if you've seen this movie and you've only ever seen it one time, I would definitely recommend uh, to go back to it. Because I think it is a piece of art. I, it was it was back and forth for me a lot between Dead Alive and this film, but I think Lynch is saying something sort of pertinent and important. And it's a great, it's one of the great horror movies. I just think that you, it does ask you to do a little bit of work for it, and and that's not always pleasant work.
0: Yeah. So I'm I have only watched Firewalk with me once because it made me so mad after seeing it after watching the show. Uh, Because I thought I had no idea what it was. And I obviously came to Twin Peaks um, a lot later and I had no idea um, that it was going to be a prequel or anything like that or the weirdness that it was. I thought it was going to be a sequel and answer all my questions, you know. But (laughs) the funny thing about Twin Peaks, I feel like people thought that the show lost its steam in the middle of the second season, I believe, is what I heard a lot. Yeah. I don't think so, necessarily. I like the entirety of Twin Peaks, and I like The Return a lot, too. I think it's just getting more Lynchian the longer you go on. I do think so, too, yeah. And I think that's probably what puts people off, and it's probably what puts people off about Fire Walk with me. I will need to revisit it, because like I said, I did like The Return, but it's clear that Lynch is one of those people, and it reminds me, and I think you have familiarity with Evangelion, right?
1: Yeah, I do. I've seen it. All yeah. of it, I think, at this point.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that, but it's the same thing where, like, they wanted uh, Hideki Hidekiano to end that story in a better way and they kept asking for it and he just kept putting out movies that made it weirder and weirder and more abstract. And that's what I feel like Lynch is almost doing with Twin Peaks. But I will go back to Firewalk with me at some point. I'm sure I'll be rewatching the show at some point, too. Again, for a third or fourth time. But... Did not like it on first viewing, but with your recommendation, I'll definitely get back to it.
1: I think, too, you, uh, you know, one of the things that made me appreciate a lot more in the second time I went to it was after seeing the return. And I think understanding that a lot of the characters that show up in the return, like Harry Dean Stanton's character and the character here that David Bowie plays, like a lot of these characters uh, were introduced in this film. And little weirdness that Lynch uses in the return didn't exist in the TV show except on the fringes. Mm-hmm. and uh, but it exists in this movie, and I think when you watch it in the context of his filmography, it becomes very interesting but i i do I do understand a lot I' gotten recently the criterion version of this, and I think it's um it is really uh, a movie that does take a little bit of work, but the heart of it I think, is that the stuff that happens with Laura Palmer and the stuff that it involves ray wise all of that is handed really, really well, and I didn't think what's the need to see all this again. The thing is, this is a strange universe, and so Lynch will linger on things that you're pretty sure don't have any kind of reason, you know, reasoning behind it. And there'll just be a shot of a man saying something random like, my mind is blank as a fart, you know, or, <laughs> you know, just very strange, odd, idiosyncratic things in the movie but I do think this isn't a case of The Emperor Has No Clothes. I think that's true of a lot of Lynch films is that because he he approaches these things as a dream, that the things that are important to him, the things that matter to him, the things he really wants to say do lie in the film. They're just buried a little bit. They may not even be fully decoded by him himself, and yet I think they do exist. And that's what I think that's what's so cool about the film in the sense of a dream is it feels like you can dig and uncover things, and they actually exist there. They're not simply... Uh, You you know, I don't think that he's a director that blows smoke. He's just he's just working things on a wavelength that is very, very different. You know, it's almost like getting
0: a scrambled radio transmission. Yeah, no, that makes sense. But like I said, I'll have to go back to it and give it a give it a fair shot for a second chance. But all right. So my number one has already been mentioned, and that is Candyman and not a whole lot more to say on it, what you've already said. But I do really like Virginia Madison's arc in this movie and I tell you what seeing the uh 2021 film the remake or sequel type movie whatever it is um gave me a better appreciation for this film and that's not taking anything away from that movie because I do like that one quite a bit but I think it just kind of made me think back more fondly on this movie and it is a it is a weird movie it doesn't go quite as weird like you were saying or ones when uh, barkers more like hands-on in it. But yeah, this is just a classic of all time. This was especially big in the 90s when I was growing up. It was in the zeitgeist for almost the entire decade, it felt like. So um I love Candyman. I think it is, in my opinion, the best uh horror film of 92, or at least the one that I like the most. So pretty boring number one, but <laughs> that's... No, I don't think so. Honestly, the
1: these top three bounce back and forth quite a bit like um you know even just up to a few minutes ago i'm like is Candyman number one is it you know uh, army of darkness and i decide you know what i want to make sure i say trey's choices before he says them so (laughs) no i'm just kidding i didn't know i didn't know obviously what your number one was but um and, and i do think you know i think that the the thing with the twin peaks is i you know I I was probably like a one or a one and a half after I finished watching it that first time. Yeah. So for me, coming back to it recently and discovering a lot there that I didn't see before is probably what has the film so high. But I do honestly think, I think it is a, uh, I think it's a masterpiece. I think it is a great horror film. I know there'll be many that don't agree with me. I think Candyman is a great horror film. I think Army of Darkness is a great film. I think think our top five films, uh, mine and yours, they are all... uh, they're 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 a, they're of a very high caliber. They're definitely, I think, above most of the other films that we have on the list. And they're, yeah. those were the films that when I glanced across 92 and thought, hey, uh, this is why I want to pick this. It was these films, these these movies.
0: Yeah, there's a huge jump for me between um, Buffy and Dead Alive. Yeah. So, I mean, my six through ten, I mean, they're they're whatever. They could be in any order. Um, and I think that's the same for us. We didn't have a lot of crossover down there, but once we get up to the bigger the films, there is a, quite a bit of leap in quality.
1: Yeah, you kind of get a These are the movies. I was very happy to see Ghost
0: Watch so high on your list because I I think Ghost Watch is a film that we don't hear that much about. You know, a lot of times. Yeah, and as someone who loves found footage, I mean, Ghost Watch is one of those early attempts at that kind of thing. Um, you know, is this real? Is this fake?
1: And I do have to give a shout out to something like Shutter that is, I think, made people uh it's giving people the opportunities to see things like ghost watch and clear cut and dust devil you know and these yeah these boutique uh titles that are that that bring some of these movies back and uh giving them to the do particularly i think you know things like vinegar syndrome and Severin releasing these direct-to-video titles i don't think anyone ever expected to see again outside of a bargain bin vhs you know
0: yeah and the thing with dust devil is it was supposed to get a release by severin but they dropped it when some controversy popped up around stanley so um, i do have the severin hardware dvd um, that i was able to find but i think they took his uh they canceled the dust devil release and they took hardware down so that's a shame we couldn't get dust devil because yeah i
1: i think dust devil actually i have i need to go back and rewatch hardware it's been years But my my memory is I think I like Dust Devil a little bit better, but I would have to go back and and rewatch Hardware.
0: Yeah, I like the sci fi aspect, uh, which I they both have kind of sci fi fantasy aspects. But Hardware is a little bit of a slimy, gross film. But I think, yeah, that was, I think, my memory of it. Anyway, let's uh, let's move on. And what are your um, honorable mentions for 1992 or other films you want to talk about?
1: So I have a couple of them, and some of some you that I would list as honorable mentions you've already mentioned, uh, The Vagrant being one of them, so I won't say anything really much more about that. Godzilla versus Moth or a Battle for the Earth. Uh, I didn't put this in the top ten because I guess in a lot of ways it really isn't horror. Uh, you know, it's maybe more sci-fi fantasy, but I think it being a Godzilla film, it deserved to be mentioned. I think it's a very fun Godzilla movie. This one uh does have the very much the environmental theme. It is very different from clear cut in the way it presents the environmental themes. But I think that the there's some great Godzilla destruction in this. And also, this high uh, era of the Godzilla films, Godzilla is, for most of this series, the villain, even when he's sort of the least villainous character sometimes. Right. Uh, but here, he's definitely the heavy, because anytime he's pitted sort of against Mothra, is always going to be kind of the hero. But what's interesting here is you split these, these uh, competing characters facets of of earth and the earth spirit into two pieces so mothra is the protector but then there's batra batra comes in and eventually a batra and uh mothra sort of combining forces to fight uh godzilla and and then that kind of makes for a fun uh fun ride i think i think it's a fun movie i love me some batra yes batra i actually have the batra (laughs) sort of larva uh sitting above me here i'll have to send you a picture of. i have the uh someone sent me this from Japan. It's actually the 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 with the horn and everything is very cool watching it swim. And that when they team up against Godzilla, the movie's very silly. Uh the first half of it kind of is very bizarre because it's almost like this really cheap like Indiana Jones rip-off thing that I that mostly deals with the human characters and doesn't quite work. But I think when the movie flips into full Godzilla mode, it's a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of these high Sierra movies were mothra looks beautiful in these films i think in, yep. the, in the high era. there's a kind of
0: weird fuzziness furriness to the wings and everything that looks really neat and the um posters for a lot of the high era films are incredible like they just yeah. look gorgeous
1: yeah this one looks really good I, I want i think that this one was maybe the
0: second or third film in the in the it, series it was technically biolante is kind of just a floating middle film that sony picked up and did but I think it's the second one. I think Ghidra might have been the first one in 91. Yeah,
1: I always kind of view... I know they say that, but Biollante sort of does introduce this particular look of the gods. You know, like... Yeah. I, in a lot of ways, it is the first the first uh, shot fired, I think. But then you do have... Uh, you're right. I think Yadiro is the first one, which is also a good movie. And, and this one... The biggest problem, I think, with both of those films is that somewhere along the line, the Japanese feel like they're going to have to, like... Uh, give full out reference to popular american blockbusters you know so one of them (laughs) has some really goofy terminator 2 references and this has some like indiana jones references and that stuff doesn't work but the monster giant monster stuff does yeah absolutely um and then you know there's a few more innocent blood is a as a uh john landis film it is not up to the caliber i think of uh american werewolf in london by no means i think people were maybe hoping for it but uh Perillo is in it she was in i think most famously la femme nikita before this uh she looks great in the movie she is not wearing a lot in most of the movie but i think that uh, as the vampire she's a lot of fun uh anthony lapagula is in the film so are robert logia don rickles the vampires here the, the concept's pretty cool because she is feeding on essentially uh mobsters and uh the mafia and what what is cool about that element is i think when if she doesn't kill them correctly then they get to come back and robert loja comes back and he realizes hey this is a great deal to be you know a crime lord and also a vampire and uh i don't think the gore is at the level that you would or, or the special effects aren't at the level that you'd want uh based on what you know landis is capable of with american werewolf but again I think uh, it's fun enough and it's funny uh, and there are some cool scenes. Don Rickles dies twice in the movie and both <laughs> scenes are, you know, both scenes are very, uh, very cool and very iconic. I think watching Robert Loggia drink Rickles like a, you know, Capri Sun is pretty interesting, but I, you know, I think ultimately it sort of wavers back and forth. There's not a lot of full blown horror and a lot of the comedy doesn't necessarily hit the way you'd want it to, but I think it's a really fun vampire movie Particularly in this early nineties era where it's uh it it has a lot a lot of ideas that it throws at the wall and there's a little bit to see what it sticks. But I I I enjoy it quite a bit. I think it's a fun vampire comedy. There's probably more comedy here than horror. Yeah. And then I I think the last the last one I really want to mention, there's probably tons that we could mention that I know you have a couple too, is uh the movie Nemesis. Now this is complete cheesy trash, really. But it is a, um, it's an Albert Payam movie. It done a ton of movies like Sword and the Sorcerer and stuff like that. That's just cheesy, uh, goofy, low budget uh, films that resemble other movies. And Nemesis is no different. But I, I, I really, there's a lot that's fun in this. It's a mix of a Blade Runner and a Terminator sort of ripoff. You've got a future where, you know, uh, you've got a lapd cop who's part man part machine and of course he's the best at what he does right you know <laughs> and is oliver grenet was in a lot of movies around this time he's not a great actor tim thomerson is in this movie but uh and empine did the movie cyborg with uh, and, and some of its sequels with um the first cyborg had jean-claude van damme this is a much better movie than that it's a lot of fun ideas it's again uh, there's a scene where you see uh the action scenes are fun, even though they're very low budget. Uh, this does again look like it's taking place in a in a post-apocalypse. that looks like someone's you know looks like a uh, the back of a car lot in California maybe, but you know whatever. And they have a lot of fun with it. There's a scene where we have a stop-motion sort of exoskeleton fight, but uh, it's very reminiscent of me of like what it was like to go to the video store and and rent these movies that were just sort of you know now we have the asylum but this is when people were trying to make actual movies uh with some of the same heart and passion even if they only had one 100th of the budget that james cameron had and uh, a movie like nemesis it does sort of skirt there were several sequels too it has that cyberpunk feel and there's a little bit of horror to it there's a lot of good like gore in the film and a lot of wild ideas and I, I think it's fun. It's a fun that if you go into this know, knowing that it's sort of a ripoff or sort of a riff on um, Terminator and on Blade Runner and things like that. I think you'll find uh, that there's a lot that you that a lot to like about it.
0: Yeah, cool. I don't think I'd heard that one. And that's not to be confused with the Resident Evil nemesis, right?
1: No, no. This was 1992. <laughs> this is Albert plan. And I think that uh, but it's it is you're going to go in and knowing off the bat that you're getting a Blade Runner sort of terminator splicing that's just it it, some of it's going to be unintentionally like bad funny you know what i mean but some of it you're going to finish watching and think hey there's there were a lot more ideas in the movie than i was expecting when it started and uh i i believe it's streaming i think it's streaming on tubi or someplace like that you can definitely find it i think it's absolutely worth a watch if you are the a low budget schlock fan this and you haven't seen this film it should jump to the top of your list.
0: Cool. Yeah, I appreciate that because it's not one that I would have thought of or heard of. So bringing some good stuff to the table. <laughs> uh, so is that all you have for your honorable mentions? It is really. I'll, I'll throw out one. I didn't necessarily love it, but I think it's a, one of those weird for people who want to
1: track down weird movies. You know, you had uh, or just obscure films and you had brought um, the Indian film. It's probably a much better movie than this, but the Hong Kong film, The Cat. I do have oh, to yeah. throw that out there. It's such a weird schlocky film it's got a lot of wild kind of goofball gore and and stop motion effects in it too the plot involves a cat from space who teams up with a princess from space to hunt a monster from space um (laughs) it's It goes on for way too long, but there are some bizarre scenes. Like I said, at one point, the cat, a cat has a fight with a dog and it's shot like a martial arts film. But it's not like the cat and the dog are anthropomorphic. They're just having this battle where once they will fly through the air and the dog will get electrocuted. The cat will get blasted. It's it's wild stuff. Um, I don't think it amounts to much in the end. But if you're a fan of crazy movies, you probably uh, owe it to yourself to check it out.
0: Yeah, that's a weird one. Was that one Shaw Brothers? Uh, it certainly felt like it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, that was, yeah, I, I've caught the cat and, uh, it's, uh, it's a very interesting movie. If you were looking for something that's an oddity and very weird, I agree with Nathan on that one. (laughs) Moving into mine, I know we've mentioned several, um, with Godzilla and Mothra there, uh, with Dust Devil and with Sleepwalkers, but another one that you had turned me on to and is kind of another one of those cheesy be like you can't take it seriously but it's kind of hilarious as Mikey um, <laughs> yeah and we were going back and forth you were rewatching that and I was watching it and that was that was a fun time for what it was it's nothing that's going to shake the earth but um, and then I wanted to mention a couple that I don't think are horror that are kind of on the fringe is I do like the hand that rocks the cradle yeah, that's pretty I, decent. I think it's a pretty good thriller, and I like. And based on your Letterboxd rating, I don't think you like this film. But Death Becomes Her, um, you know,
1: and I, I you know, I'm a, the thing with my Letterboxd ratings is I've recently come back to Letterboxd. When I did it originally, I also, even though it was on a five star scale, I was probably. I was rating them more like fours the height, unless you get something's a masterpiece. And I've changed because I don't think that's the way people read letterbox ratings. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think they look at it and they say, um, hey, this movie is, you know, you've got the full rating here. So if you're giving it a four, I think you're giving it a B or something like that. So I've tried to change my letterbox ratings, even going through this. So I don't think Death Becomes her is when I came back across. But honestly speaking, I having rewatched it, not that long ago. Let me see what I rated it here. Oh, I don't even, see, Oh, two stars. Yeah. You know what? That's, I'd say that's more of a three out of five. Honestly. Um, okay. I like the movie. I think it's fun. I don't think it's great. I, what I love about it is it's essentially, so Zemeckis directed this, I believe, right? Yes. Yep. And I think that was my problem. It felt like a bit of a come down for him. But if you keep in mind that Zemeckis was, was heavily involved with uh tales from the crypt, the TV series. This is really a long tail from the Crypt episode.
0: Yeah, and it's got a much lighter tone. Um, and I just love Bruce Willis's character in this. That's my main driving force of that movie. But I mean, you would see this as a as uh, Mechas would take a tailspin after this one, though, right? Oh, does he with his what next film with? in 1994?
1: Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I would. I would. Yeah, I think this is a better movie
0: than Forrest Gump all the way. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm with you, too, but we're going to get some hate for that. But uh, let's move on before they can. Yeah, they're, well, they're at my door right now. Uh, the last uh, one I want to yeah, mention, I just want to say Isabella Rossellini looks fantastic in that film. In the yes, yes, absolutely. Last one I want to mention. This is a weird one, Nathan, and you might enjoy it. Um, just <laughs> yeah, from that that seems, perspective. Seems to be the case. <laughs> So this one um I had covered with Matt and Jackson over on Father and son a long time ago. I think that's been a couple of years now um but it's called the Touch and it's a Russian film and it's on YouTube yes. out there do you that's have a you seen weird, that's a weird film Very okay okay, you have film. seen it okay yes, yeah, that's a weird one um that Jackson kind of introduced me to and i i um <laughs> I liked it and I didn't like it, but it's it's got a kind of charm to it, and I I know Jackson's a fan, so that's another weird one I want to throw out. I, there are other films that I like better than that, like Innocent Blood and stuff, but that's just an interesting one I wanted to throw out. There. So that's about all I've got. Then um, anything else for you on the year nineteen ninety two?
1: Uh no, I don't think so. Um, I think that's about I think that's about it. Now the touch. Is that the film? Are we talking about the same film? Was that really a horror film? Yeah. The, the one with Max von Sydow and like the pianist and everything. He's like a composer from the Holocaust or he's a survivor of the Holocaust.
0: No. So this is a very low budget Russian film.
1: Okay. Um, wait a minute. So I think we may be talking about different films. Let me see if I've seen the touch you're talking about. I'm glad I, because the the one I saw was from 92 also. Um, but I think it may be a different film. A different movie
0: yeah i think that's a very different movie
1: <laughs> i was like oh that's so touching and it's such a strange uh choice and then no the touch
0: i'm not i'm not seeing it pop up it's very hard to find oh, wow, okay. i'll um i'll send it to you later and i'll i'll send the link in the show notes because i only found it because jackson sent me an imdb link or something is this so- some demented mess <laughs> Oh, it's very weird, but it's not a bad film. Um, but I, I'm looking on Letterboxd, and I'm it's looking like maybe a hundred people have logged this film.
1: Oh okay, yeah, so. I looked at it, and it's possible I have seen it because I've seen a lot of movies. But when I looked up the Touch, the one I saw was the the side out movie, which is not a bad movie. But I was like, oh, that's and it's interesting in its own way. But okay, the Touch 19. Oh wait, okay, yeah, it's got like I an have, old. I have totally seen this movie, and it's uh, it, it's. Yes, um with the detective. Yes, this movie's crazy. <laughs> I don't think it's good crazy though. It's just crazy. It's like uh yeah, um, it's, it's kind of beautifully bizarre, but it's I don't I wouldn't recommend it as a good movie. I'd recommend it as like a experience. That's more of
0: what I was going for with that.
1: Yes, <laughs> it has, it has it feels almost sometimes like you're watching like a silent film for or that era of you know like a man with movie
0: camera kind of Russian filmmaking style. Yeah. What's very early in that Russian, you know, period of more freedom when they're filmmaking. But anyway, yeah. In in closing, I think 92 is a pretty fun year looking back at it. So
1: yeah, for sure. Top heavy with some really good stuff and then uh, filled bottom heavy with a bunch of wild garbage.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But some of it's uh, fun wild garbage. So yeah. Um, uh, All right, Nathan, do you want to tell everyone where they can find you?
1: Yeah, uh, you can find me over at Phantom Galaxy, uh, where I host a podcast with my uh, co-host, Bill Van Vagel, uh, who's also over on Land of the Creeps. Uh, We cover science fiction, fantasy, horror, and Trey joins us more often than not, (laughs) particularly (laughs) for the uh, for you. You've been very um, uh, frequent on our Phantom Galaxy review episodes, and that's mostly because Trey sees a lot of the new films as well and so you can find him over there quite often. I think we have a couple things in the works, uh, some, some team-ups going forward, and I'm looking forward to that, and thanks again for having me on. You can you can find us on Facebook at Phantom Galaxy or PhantomGalaxyPodbean.com, and then we are on Twitter as Phantom Galaxy.
0: Yeah, I love Phantom Galaxy and listening to those episodes. You've got a little bit of everything for everyone, and I really appreciate you having me on over there and talking a lot of times non-horror movies, so I get to get out of my normal routine from over here. That's
1: what everyone says. They're like, Oh, I get to not talk about horror films.
0: Not, <laughs> not that they don't love it, but I mean, it,
1: there's a lot of people like yourself. that are doing it on a regular basis as you know.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, yep. I think Dave's like on like three podcasts that are horror. So. Yeah, exactly.
0: But as far as uh, my plugs, you can find um, the sh- me over on Twitter at screaming ages. I'm on Facebook with a group of screaming through the ages. Uh let's see. I've got my website where all the episodes and my Newly minted blog is housed. I don't know if I'll do much with that, but it's over there at screamingthroughtheages.com. You can reach out by email at ScreamingThroughTheAges@yahoo.com. at yahoo.com. And the final thing is, I did put together, let's see if I can find it here. I did put together recently a voicemail, mainly for a project I'm working on. Um, that's going to come out later. But if you did want to call and leave, the, leave a voicemail for the show, it is 740-297-6556. As always, you can find the show wherever you get your podcast. And uh, with that being said, keep your eye on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson.